Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, we have attorney Paul Morantz, who litigated against coercive groups. One of the main subjects we discuss is the group Synanon, started by Charles Dieterich. The following audio is of Charles Dieterich talking over the wire to members of Synanon, threatening violence against antagonists of the group. After the audio of Charles Dieterich, there will be a three-hour discussion with Paul Morantz concerning his two books and his experiences litigating against coercive groups. This interview will only be one hour. The following two hours can be found on my YouTube channel at William Ramsey Investigates. Thank you very much. I, I, I keep thinking of, of, of militant posture. I'm trying to do that, and uh, I'm trying to bring that about. 
I think that is our is is, is the new religious posture. We'll see. Maybe I'm right. I think we I think we I think we will bring that about. We started quite a while ago with the Imperial Marine deal and so on. We're doing that. We're taking our best people for the end of this kind of situation. our intention to do just exactly that. We're not going to mess with the, the old time, turn the other cheek, and really just posture. Our, our posture is don't mess with us. You can get killed dead. Physically dead. And we're going to crack some bones. Not too many. You don't have to. Proceeding audio was of Charles Dieterich, founder and head of Synanon. Now on to the interview with Paul Morantz. The book that I read was Escape, My Lifelong War Against Colts, written by attorney Paul Morantz. Paul, are you there? Yes, I am. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, this to you know talk about this book and your life as an attorney who fought Colts. I read the book over the last week. It's a, it's a fa- fantastic read. Really interesting, but I would suspect much of this audience hasn't heard your name. If you could uh, give us a little background about yourself, how you got into the law, where you grew up, things like that, that would be great. Sure. First, let me correct you that uh, I would not describe myself as being part of the anti-cult movement. A movement is actually what the book complains about, the more accurate uh, description for a cult. And if, and there are and is an anti-cult movement. And, and sometimes it takes on the same characteristics of a cult, black and white thinking, um, you know, the ends justify the means and led to a period that's sort of past now of kidnapping, deprogrammings. And I was never a part of that. Okay, well, I was someone who tried to educate people about the dangers of cults. Awesome. Well, I appreciate so, that clarification, but tell us, tell sure. the audience a little bit about your background, where you grew up, etc. Um, I grew up in West Los Angeles. I went to Hamilton High School. Uh, my dream was to go to USC. Um, and there I was sports editor and good friend of John McKay's and and O.J. Simpson, and it was a very fun time of life. I decided that uh, I wanted to be a writer, and I thought that's what I was going to do in life, but it was so much fun at USC. I went to law school so I could hang around another three years. You know, gotcha. This was like 1967-68. You know, we're still talking about you know, the time of you know, the revolution, you know, uh, girls and short skirts and and, and uh, it was 
a, just a great time to be a teenager and be young. You don't want necessarily to, to have it in quickly. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. I mean, the the law students on a campus are kind of like the big men on campus too, right? Oh, yeah. Somewhat. I mean, there was a certain group of undergraduate girls that always managed to study in the law school library. And when we walked in, we could identify them and their presence by their perfume. Gotcha. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, tell us a little bit about what happened when you graduated from USC. Did you? How did you kind of get started in these uh, cult-related cases? Well, you first have to start with, um, you know, personality. Um, put in contrast, in 2011, in the book you read, I was very concerned at that point about the type of movies that were being made at that time, which centered on the bad guys as being the heroes, and worried about what effect that would have on future generations. Although it seemed as fast as I wrote that, the movie swung back to doing movies about heroes again. But I grew up at a time in the 50s that um, he saw television, he saw John Wayne. You know, a big thing in my life was when I was nine years old, watching uh, the episodes of Davy Crockett and Walt Disney's Wild World of Color. And all those things had sort of great effects on me. And I remember seeing the Audie Murphy story. If you know who Audie Murphy is. He was is. the uh, World War II military fighter, is that correct? Yeah. And so these were my heroes. And yet I never felt that I could be a Audie Murphy type or a John Wayne. And um, I certainly wasn't um, a match for Davy Crockett. Although he was the one I admired the most because he had these principles, you know, be sure you're right and then go ahead. And so when the big thing was when Al Pacino played Serpico mm -hmm. in the movie Serpico, yes. I must have watched that three times, read the book, and it was, I felt that I could do that and that I probably would like doing that and that what Serpico did was he, he it wasn't a physical, he's going out and attacking the Indians. It was, he was gathering the facts and bringing the evidence and no one could make him quit. Right. Even if he lost his girlfriend, everything, you know, and, uh, and so Serpico was sort of, uh, became my idol, and it was always sort of in the back of my mind that if I was ever placed in the situation that he was and had that type of information, I would do the same thing that he would do. Gotcha. And I guess that um, uh, the first incident, um, when I was... 26 years old and I was a public defender we had this crazy judge Noel Cannon who was locking people up and locking me up and um, she carried a derringer in her purse and she uh, her name was Noel Cannon uh, used to call it Cannon's Law she even made Time Magazine saying that all the lawyers were intimidated uh, by her and when she locked up one of my clients to get back at me because of I ran an in-run appeal to get him out of jail when the investigators had actually cleared him. 
and she had him locked up. And at that point, I began to do investigation on her and prepare a report to show that she knew that his case had been dismissed and that he had been cleared when she locked him up. And that led to a hearing eventually in which she became the third judge in California to be removed from the bench. And uh, and I think that that sort of cemented my personality, so to speak. Gotcha. Then I had success in writing, and um, I'd written a story that was being published in Rolling Stone. I'd written some other stories published in the West. I had an agent. I had people wanting me to write books. Um, I was starting to work on a screenplay, and I thought this is where I wanted to go in life. Right. And uh, that was about Jan and Dean, right? Jan and Dean. Yeah, about part. Jan and Dean. Gotcha. And so then the strange thing happens is that through a skid row alcoholic named T.B. Renfro uh, makes a phone call from Golden State Manor to a liquor store opener, liquor store operator in downtown Los Angeles. They weren't allowed, they, the Skid Row alcoholics, to use the phones, but one nurse let him make a call, and he said to the operator that, uh, I'm being held prisoner here. He called my brother, and I managed to get a hold of a nurse at the, at the, um, at the place, and she confirmed to me that there was a whole series of Skid Row alcoholic people that she believed there was no reason for them to be there. It was a mental ward, and that they had been brought strangely by this man named Weldon. She had done a little investigation and found out that they arrived the same day that they left prison for drinking. Interesting. So, um, I thought they were probably there on probation. I just didn't understand it. On probation, a judge can say, instead of a jail, or for a shorter jail sentence, you agree to go spend time in a nursing home. But that's still voluntary. They can still walk out. It just would mean they'd be breaking the conditions of probation, and they could be sentenced. But I figured it was something that probably everyone involved didn't really understand. I wasn't really ready to think that people could kidnap Skid Row alcoholics to make money off of them. It just didn't seem like that was a, a likely thing. Right. But then the thing that changed, I guess, the course of my life was the next Saturday, there was a story in the LA Times. They arrested x-ray operator, a guy did horrible x-rays at nursing homes because he hired a hitman to assassinate the administrator at Ranchos Los Amigos. And the reason for that was is that the minister was going to testify that the uh, X-ray lab horrible guy was trying to bribe him to send certain long-term patients to certain nursing homes. Gotcha. And when I thought, wow, if that's going on in that industry, maybe I should call back that nurse again. And... I would spend about uh, two and a half, three months pretty intensely researching, finding former employees at the nursing home. I finally found a bookkeeper who, for her own safety, kept copies of the payoff checks to the capper who brought the bodies to the nursing homes where they were being filled with thorazine. 
And when I finally had it all put together and knew exactly what was going on, that there was this conspiracy to kidnap Skid Row alcoholics to fill the beds so they could collect the money from Medi-Cal, Medicare, and Social Security, um, I knew that once I went down to for my one client, T.B. Renfro, to get him out, that they'd let all the others out and that they would destroy the records. So I took everything to the health department and laid it all out for them. And they said, what do you want us to do? And I said, I want you to come with me when I go to get my client out because you have the power to grab the records before they destroy them. And so that was the start. And so for two and a half years, I... um, I was involved in that case. I had skidder alcoholics living in my apartment at times when their depositions were taken to make sure they stayed sober. I sort of became their babysitter. And um, when that case was over, I was sort of a uh, a local celebrity. Uh, not a national celebrity, but a local celebrity. You know, I was known to, to the health department. I was known to the county council. I attended many hearings. And so I had a lot of people sort of believing in me. Gotcha. Um, but I thought that was my last of it. I thought, okay, I did my Serpico thing. You know, they could not make me go away. Eight law firms. You know, I battled the case and and I exposed the nursing home industry. When T.B. Renfro, my client, died, he was on the front page of the L.A. Times as the Skidrow alcoholic who launched the biggest investigation into the nursing home industry in its history. So I, I felt, well, I've done that, did that, and now go back to my writing career. And about that time, I had Janet Dean now was being, um, you know, made to a movie in CBS. So I got my into Hollywood, so to speak, because you can't really sell until you sold. It's kind of a hard circle, but now I had pierced it. And I met a woman that I thought I was going to marry. I had two kids. And so I saw my life as being pretty well set. And I probably was going to leave law. I wanted to sell the next screenplay or write a book, something to just give me a little more security and confidence because I wanted to raise these kids and, and marry this woman, and so I couldn't go back to, you know, writing in some apartment, you know. Right. Selling magazine stories, you know, like the Rolling Stone, did, did not really pay the bills, you know. Right. You know, unless you went on staff, and I don't think I would have wanted to do that. So I took a job at a law firm and um, and was living a pretty normal life and thinking probably that that's what I wanted. Meanwhile, in 1976, I think it was, um, this woman, uh, Frances, met Ed visiting from Los Angeles and Georgia. Ed worked from Western Union. Now, Western Union is for the the youth out there. This was long before 
the internet and email people sent messages, believe it or not, by Western Union. It's a, you know, long ago, um, past history, you know, it'd be like getting the original printing press. Right. But Western Union was still going in 76, and he, he fell in love with her and married her, brought her back to Los Angeles. And she had had some history of of uh, emotionalism of she broke up with a boyfriend. And now she lost a job, and she was having unfounded fears about her her husband. And uh, he might want to leave her, that she wasn't holding up the marriage. She had unfounded fears that something bad was happening to her parents. She was becoming moot and sitting in a chair while watching Laker game, tears were rolling down her cheeks. And Ed decided to take her to UCLA Neuropsychiatric the next day when he got off work. But in the morning, he dropped her off at Venice Family Planning Center to see if she could get a tranquilizer. Venice does not... Uh, before you drive the all-new Nissan Rogue, you gotta ask yourself, how rogue are you gonna go? We talking, find your spirit animal in the desert rogue? Build an igloo in the middle of nowhere rogue? Or, take the long way home just because kind of rogue? Just a question, but with five available drive modes, you're sure to find the answer. Go rogue in the all-new, fiercely reimagined 2021 Nissan Rogue. Now with the most standard safety features in its class. See owner's manual for important safety information. Auto Pacific Segmentation. 2021 Nissan Rogue versus latest in market competitors. Base models compared. Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. Oh, no, did this. The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you gotten me into here, Michael? I need more time! I can't do it at any of this... You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. Control advice. And the person there, husband was a donor lawyer at the Synodon, and he said, uh, she said, why don't you go to Synodon? Maybe they can help you. Oh. And she took a taxi cab ride. And as she said, going up the steps that someone said to her, don't go in there, you'll never come out. But she went in, and she went upstairs, and she answered a few questions. Do you want Synodon's help? Yes. You know, will you do what we said? Yes. And then they came up, and they, she had waist-long hair, and they shaved it all off, bald. And then they took her by the wrist into an apartment across the street, and the next morning, put her on a bus to Marin County. Right. When she'd ask for her husband, they would say, uh, well, he knows where you are. He obviously doesn't love you. You're, we're your family now. Meanwhile, they called the husband. And he was coming down there, and he was being told he wouldn't be allowed to see her. And males gathered around the desk and sort of pushed him out. And uh, he then began writing letters to the president, to the press, Senators went to the police, everyone, and couldn't believe it that he's not allowed to see his wife. And she walked into and the she walked into the original Synodon Center. That's the Del Mar. Del Mar. 
Uh, the Del Mar Hotel, just for people who don't know, is a big building that uh, housed Sinanon just south of the Santa Monica Pier in downtown Santa Monica, right by the ocean. Just wanted to get that. Yeah, it was, I think, built in the 1920s or something like that, and it was a, actually during World War II, it was taken over as a, as a military headquarters. And then after the war ended, it went back to becoming an elite club for for the young and rich to go to on the beach of Santa Monica. You know, young stockbrokers and attorneys and professional people. And uh, but it wasn't making enough money. And Sinan was able to purchase it in '67. Gotcha. So, so this woman was taken to. She was taken up to there another Sinanon. And that's S Y N A N O N. Their yeah, place in somewhere right, in Marine County. County. Right, right, gotcha. Right. It was a much bigger facility. They were building a city in the, in Marine County. So uh, Ed uh, ran into a former girlfriend, accompanied by her current boyfriend, and he told the story. And the her current boyfriend said, "You know, I had a neighbor." who got all these guys out of out of nursing homes, and maybe he can get your wife out of Sinanon, and gave him my number. Gotcha. And so when I came in that next Monday, after spending a weekend with my woman and the kids, there was a phone call that Edwin called, and I telephoned him, and he started crying. He was just crying his eyes out. And somewhere in, in all the tears, I said, I said, stop crying. I'll get her back. I guarantee it. And, and that uh, so that was the start. Can you talk a little bit about Synanon, the organization itself, and the kind of the head person uh, who started Synanon, Charles Dieterich? How much detail do you want? Well, I mean, just uh, the audience, I suspect, I didn't know anything about Synanon before... I uh, had read the book. I knew a little bit about it through you know, its offshoots, but I really at, didn't at one time, at one time, I suggested when the people were talking about making a documentary to call it the the cult that time has forgotten. I see. It amazes to me. It's like, of course, I meet people who don't know who Patty Hearst was, so, but it still amazes me that uh, how fast and on his. Because it was a big story. It was a really big story. It occupied the the headlines of newspapers and magazine features from its conception in '58 to its end in 1991. You know, right, for one period of time, uh, when they tried to kill me, it was the biggest story in the country. Wasn't Sinanon like a massive landowner? They owned tons of property in Santa Monica. They were the biggest land. They were the biggest landowner, Santa Monica landowner. Gotcha. And they were worth in the seventies about thirty-three million, which just you know, Jonestown was, was by comparison, I think, was six million. Gotcha. You know, and of course, Jonestown occurred uh, six weeks after Sinanon. Yet history has gone on to always uh, repeat and tell the story of Jonestown. But Synanon was actually far more dangerous. Jonestown erupted within and exploded 
with the mass of suicide, which has happened many times in history, you know, was it to happen, you know, after Jonestown. What CERNON was is that they developed a hit squad that went out and attacked people from the West Coast to the East Coast. There were three attempted murders, and from their own documents, I'm able to put together about 88 uh, beatings, physical contacts. And it was, and it was an organization that had political connections. Um, you know, Dietrich was offered, and his wife offered post by our current governor. And um, back when his first time he was governor in the seventies, and he was, you know, the subject of four or five books. They they made a motion picture on on Columbia Studios with uh, Edmund O'Brien playing Charles Diederich, you know, the founder. Talk, talk a little bit about Diederich and what, you know, not just the Imperial Marines, but what they kind of instituted and what they believed uh, right. they could do for the individual. Well, let me say something about, just comment about what people believe. In destructive cults, and it's defined as destructive cults is generally where the people are the servants of the organization rather than the organization existing to serve its members. And usually the leader is sociopathic and has no uh, problem uh, controlling people's lives and directing them to do their bidding. Now, the way that they get them to do their bidding is that they create a belief system or a set of beliefs or change it and then convince the followers, and that's the motivation, or the care with the stick. But in, in 95 or more percent of the time, the leader doesn't actually believe the beliefs. He's just creating them as a sales pitch. You know, and I would apply that to every case that, uh, that I know of. So... Now, that was interesting that in your book you stated that even though the cults changed, you felt like you were fighting the same person. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I felt like I was fighting the same personality over and over again, whether his name was Charles Diedrich, Warner Earhart, L. Ron Hubbard. Um, I think, so, uh, my it, concern is today over the future uh, you know, president-elect. Um, the... The same kind of personality, personality traits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a lot of things President Lex said, I think, come out of the mouths of uh, of cult leaders, including saying, "I have a movement." You know, I will, you know, bring back waterboarding and and a lot more. And uh, I want to hold rallies where everyone comes out and cheers me. These are, you know, things. That, well, Oh, Those are similar to the turn. things that Dieterich did in Synanon, right? Didn't he have, like, attack groups, and he used to it's, speak it's, over the wire or something? Can you talk about it's, that? It's consistent with George Orwell's predictions, and it's consistent with um, with Nazi Germany. Um, yeah, I would say the first thing to explain about Dietrich is his childhood. Uh, he was born in, in Toledo, Ohio. His father was a salesman, and his mother was a uh, stage pianist. They were upper middle class, probably. Um, and but the father died when he was four, 
in a uh, automobile accident trunk. And his mother made Chuck the favorite of the uh, three kids that she had. And she was the oldest. And, uh, and he was sort of at a very early age made into the man of the family. And four years later, his youngest brother dies of the flu. We're talking about a time in which, you know, they didn't have the, you know, the drugs that we have today. The flus were like epidemics, wiping out millions of kids. And but when he was 12, his mother remarried a very rich man in Toledo, and Dietrich became jealous that his role as the leader of the house was taken from him. And by that time, he started to drink, you know, rebel rouse and had a sort of a life as a uh, party person to be the opposite of his father-in-law, who was conservative and religious and financially successful. Chuck tried Notre Dame and flunked out, flunked out elsewhere, and finally gets a job um, for the... Uh, uh, Standard Oil Company and he um, Gulf Oil, excuse me and he um, becomes a salesman for them and has some success marries he has a son and uh, but he's just becoming more and more of a drunk she finally throws him out of the house and he decides to go to California and be a beach bum when he arrives in California, he ends up working for Hughes Tool and um, and finds his way when he, he marries a second time. And that one ends marriage the way the first one does. He's just too drunk and she's had enough. And uh, uh, he had a daughter in the second marriage. After they divorced... Uh, the second wife's uh, new boyfriend, uh, when she broke up with him, shot her, killed her in front of uh, Chuck's daughter, J.D. Oh, wow. So J.D. ends up coming into Sinan, and she will become later the their successor. Um, when Dietrich became an AA fanatic and rose within AA, he volunteered for a an experiment that was being done to see whether or not a new drug might help alcoholics stop drinking. And the drug was LSD. And Diedrich took it and had this great experience where he believed that he saw the world as it is. There was no good. There's no bad. It just is and went through a period of reading philosophy books, psychology books, and then began to speak in those tones at AA instead of the normal religious tones. And he developed the following that would come to his apartment after the AA meetings, and they would enter into a circle and play what was later to become called the game. And the idea was you can scream and attack anyone's behavior, and you don't even have to be telling the truth. You can say anything you want to have a positive effect. And um, a couple addicts came around and were allowed to participate. AA in those days did not allow addicts 
and because of the belief it could not be cured, and they would just rob and steal. And these addicts stopped shooting while they were there, although later they would go back to it. And more and more addicts came around. The alcoholic people didn't want them. And AA said they can't come to meetings. And so Diedrich stood up at AA and you know, accused them of bigotry and everything. He made his decision. And his decision was, well, you got AA for the alcoholics, but there's no one for the addicts. So he tossed out the alcoholics and kept the addicts. And at first it was just a small storefront in Venice called the... Uh, uh, tender Loving Care Club. Right. But when they found the name was um, was taken, when they finally incorporated in 58, uh, someone had smeared the word for their games. They were called Rural Synodons at the time. And uh, actually, they were called seminars or symposiums, and someone slurred the word together and got Synodon. And Dietrich spelled it in the sand and the beach played with the words and then he said it would look good on the trucks. And so in nineteen fifty eight Synodon was born. And they and Dieterich said it would one day be bigger than Coca Cola, right? Right, right. And a lot of people thought that you know, this was finally the birth of Camelot. And in some sense it was. I mean Synodon was was actually in in this history of quest for utopia, it may be got closer than most. Interesting. You know, it got to the tip, but you know, it's like if you read George Orwell or if you believe in his philosophies, mankind could never create utopia because he's too flawed, and in the end, it will crumble. And that, that's kind of how it played out in Synanon. I mean, even though they attracted people like Leonard Nimoy, Robert Wagner, they had their own kind of strange kind of doctrines and uh, phrases that they used for their stuff. They, you know, talked about... Every, every, every cult does. Every cult makes its own language, you know, whether or not it's Scientology, Synanon, Moonies. And Lifton, Dr. Robert J. Lifton, his book on on the brainwashing of the prisoners' war, said that um, that everyone thinks they're becoming smarter because they're learning these new phrases and these new words. But he says it's actually reducing your capacity to think because your language is being reduced to small phrases right. gotcha. and to repeating small phrases. So. You're actually not, it's the language of non-think. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, all those phrases and terms. and the, I mean, he was basically like a human potential. It became a human potential movement, right? From kind of drug yes, rehab. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I could go on for a long time about Maslow, you know, who was sort of the creator of all this. But the Synodon just copied as it went along sort of whatever was popular at the time. So in the 50s, it was, you had the coffee houses and uh, the beatniks. And so the image of Synodon was a coffee house and where people played bongos. And uh, so Hollywood sort of discovered it. You know, Charlton Heston, like I said, Natalie Wood, you know, Lucille Ball, everyone was coming down, Steve Allen, 
because uh, they wanted sort of an escapism, they thought, from, if anything, from the phoniness of Hollywood. Sinan was real. People talked, you know, supposedly, you know, about real problems and the problems they had growing up, and um, it was very attractive. The amount of non-addicts who would come to their Saturday night parties um, and donate money just kept growing and growing, and Sinan became more and more famous. And then it just kind of went sour. I mean, you talked about the Imperial Marines. You talked about some of their strange stuff. Well, it's a lot. It's a lot slower process than that. You know, it's in my other book, Miracles of Madness. You know, I only tell the story of Sinan. You know, it's like it's a huge book, six hundred and seventy pages, and it's meant to be the most complete study of one group that you'll ever see. I had every newspaper ever written on Sinan. I had all their memos. I had tape recordings of Deidre. And I was able to put together this amazing story in history. But it was, you know, first the addicts began to to use the language of the street, you know, you know the square words, and they were allowed in the game so you could, you know, attack people. You were not allowed to commit violence, and you were not allowed to threaten violence. The belief was that that would stop people from speaking. And then the, also, if there was violence, that the police were waiting to, to tear them down. Sunan was born in controversy. Uh, you had a, a, a group of criminologists like uh, Lou Yabonsky and different people that thought it was, you know, the greatest thing in the world. And you had a senator tell John F. Kennedy that it's a miracle on the beach. Santa Monica was against it. They did not want a beacon attracting addicts from all over the country who would then fail and then, you know, occupy Santa Monica. Right. They wanted Senate on, you know, gone. And, um, they arrested Diedrich for operating a hospital without a license and on his own at that point using a National Guard armory that was located on the beach um, right on the edge of Santa Monica. And uh, Governor Brown Jr. signed a bill, excuse me, Pat Brown Sr., his father, signed a bill in 1961 that exempted Sinanon from... Uh, health licensing under accepting the Sinanon argument that the public had failed in curing drug addicts. So keep the state out of Sinanon and let Sinanon go its own way and find its own cure. Gotcha. And that was accepted. There was a very powerful minority view that Sinanon didn't cure anybody, but absorbed people, and that it had cultish aspects, and that one day there would be a state of mind in Sinanon that they were afraid of. Turns out that those people were the ones who had a better crystal ball. But you can't blame the people who jumped on Sinanon's wagon, because they had, from the beginning, like 13, 14 people, average age, say 35, 36 years old, that had robbed banks, banks that had, you know, done stick-ups, that had 
you know. Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. Who did this? The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you got me into here, Michael? I need more time. I can't do it to any of this. You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. All right, guys, here we go. Let's stay sharp. Your friends are really good gamers. Huge attacker spotted behind the tree. That's you. Got him. And you're no slouch either. Okay, John, there's a green bonus block. It's all yours. It's right behind you. Mm -mm -mm -mm. But if your slow upload speeds freeze the game because you have cable... John, attack it to your right. To your right. And you end up succumbing to hordes of marauding robo-bunnies. Uh, uh, uh. John, stop standing there. Run! Can't move! Uh. You're not a bad gamer. You just need better internet. John, we told you to get AT&T fiber. Way to go, John. Nice one, dude. With 20 times faster upload speeds, AT&T Fiber delivers a faster internet experience than cable. Get AT&T Fiber with unlimited internet data included. No annual contract. Limited availability in select areas. Call 1-877-ONLY-ATT. Speeds not guaranteed and vary based on combined up and download speeds versus major cable providers. One gig service with uploads of 35 megabits per second. Restrictions apply. Check availability at att.com slash getfiber. They hooked on heroin since they were, you know, 15 or 14 who now are living lives that were envious. And a large part of that was that um, they had reached an age where they were tired of the streets. They had reached an age where they were ready to commit to something to get off drugs. And then Sinanon sort of made the discovery that, um, well, one is... There was hope, because at that time, in 1958, the, the idea that you could ever cure an addict was thought to be impossible. There was no hope. You know, we might as well just give him his drugs or shoot him. Gotcha. You know, uh, and uh, Sinanon had showed that, well, if you put a roof over the head, take away their problems by giving them a bed, feeding them friends, not only friends, but the people that they knew on the street that they used to shoot with are the people who are telling them, don't do it anymore, and look at me, look how I look today, and you can look like this. And so there was, uh, you know, a discovery. Right, so now, they, they were able to cure people, but how did Synanon kind of generate its month, its funds? Well, they had people donating, they had the game club, um, and then Diedrich was a pretty smart businessman making, um, some, uh, deals on property. The, uh, uh, a gas station, um, company let them buy some gas stations that they ran. But the biggest thing was they got a, uh, a stamp machine that allowed them to stamp products. So this was your, your, promotional items for big business. So you would go to, say, a Fortune 500 company and say, here, order your giveaway pens with your name stamped on it, but also stamped on it would be sent on. Right. And the message was, if you buy from us, not only do you get a tax write-off, but you save a life. 
And that was a pretty uh, big sales pitch, and that brought in, you know, eventually would be they'd become the second largest uh, supplier of promotional items in the United States. Right, so it was like merchandise merch or something like that. Is what and they all, yeah, and there were always businesses. And then, you know, as they developed more and more businesses, the changes that the Synagogue came in in 66. Uh, Diedrich actually saw Synagogue as a failure. Um the actual percentages of people uh, staying off drugs, no one really knew, but but from what they could piece together, it was, you know, maybe 3%, 2%. You know, it just wasn't succeeding. Gotcha. large part was they were getting younger people, a lot of people coming, you know, on the information. A lot of people came there just to get, clean for a while and then leave. They didn't have the same dedicated people that they had in the beginning. And so Diedrich saw it as a failure. It's funny because I don't. You know, I think it was more successful than he thought it was. Uh, but he then began to recruit the squares. Squares were non-addicts. And he saw them as what he needed to run the businesses and to develop it into utopia and to um, create a new society. And for this, um, he developed the Synon Trip, which was a process that I believe that Warren Earhart copied when he made the, uh, the S training. The idea that you come for a weekend, you're not allowed to sleep, you know, use a lot of meditative states. You know, people are attacked verbally, you know, shown to be, you know, that they're assholes. And the message being applied that there is hope and that is total commitment to Synodon. And so through the, the trip experience, uh, squares were then sucked into Synodon. They would turn over all their money and their wealth and it's very interesting, both with, with uh, Jonestown, with Sinan, and a lot of these groups that started helping poor people, that really changes in them where they became so crazy and violent is when the middle class started entering. Interesting. And, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It seems to be a common thing. But the people from the middle class, some of them are coming because they want the power. Uh, who are who are these people? They are most of them are good people, but they're just lonely. They're unhappy. They don't particularly like freedom. They want someone to carry a big stick, a big daddy, and tell them what to do and how to live, and and give them their meals and their jobs and their friends, and most of all, give them a purpose. Gotcha. And that is always a large part of the population at all times in history. That's why we have cults over and over and over again, right. is because you have this group of people, and they do live better and happier in such environments. The trick is to keep keep it from going bad. You know, well, in Sinan's case, 
Diedrich in 67, he said, there's no more graduation. No one ever leaves. This is a, a cradle of the graveside. So a lot of people think that the Eagle song, Hotel California, was, was actually written about Sinan. That's interesting. So how did, how, did the Eagles know, how did the Eagles know about Sinanon? Well, everyone knew about Sinanon. Sinanon was big news. Um, and if you're, if you're, and also, there's this connection between jazz and musicians and Sinanon because those are the people who get hooked on drugs. So a lot, you know, musicians and jazz musicians went into Sinanon. But, but from this period, they never came out. So that the leave was no longer um, allowed. The idea was that Sinan was a failure and that the only way that someone stays off drugs is to stay here forever. Gotcha. What do you think that Sinanon's, so, what do you think Sinanon's peak membership was? About 1800, 1800. 2000. That was what, and, the mid-70s? Uh, early 70s? Yeah, yeah. And what, it just kept steady growing, growing each year. You know, in the sixties when he closed it, it was probably about five hundred and eighty, you know, something at that time. But when he built the city of Monk County, where it could be a cradle of great society, he instituted containment, and containment meant that you don't even you don't leave the facility. We have our own movie theaters, we have our own restaurants, we have our own food. All entertainment is here. You don't associate with non-Sinon people. You don't leave unless you're in a group of people that go out together. And and containment was basically the death of Sinon. Because now in a world that's contained, you now got George Orwell's 1984. You've got the wire, the speakers, the public address system. But Diedrich is now surrounded by yes men. Nobody will say no to him. And everyone will reinforce his any idea. And no one's having any source of information or contact other than Sinanon. Sinanon. And the wire, so can, you explain, can you explain what the wire was and how that functioned? They set up speakers all throughout. They had, you know, later to build the city in, in the Badger Mountains in Visalia and then one like Avasu. And a wire was a broadcasting system. There's a radio station. And it was 24 hours. And it was in all the bedrooms, all the hallways, the bathrooms. And, you know, Dietrich could patch in with a microphone and speak any time. And then there was always your DJ who would be playing news. And they would um, play over tapes of Dietrich speaking. And... Eventually, the, the major conversation on the wire was the enemies and getting the enemies. Gotcha. It, it, it was 1984. Everyone says when, when 1984 arrived, they said, well, it never happened. Orwell was wrong. The fact is, it, it happened in, in 1977. Gotcha. And did, uh, didn't, right, Sinanon became increasingly violent for around that time, too. Is that correct? Sinanon commands violence in 74. And I can tell you how, how that happened, if you want. Yeah, please do. The IRS 
because of the squares moving in, began to challenge the idea that Synodon was a charity and should be getting, not have to pay taxes if they really were running businesses and supporting a lifestyle. And seeing this battle coming, um, Diedrich and his law people, Dan Garrett, Howard Garfield, they plotted together and decided that the way to keep their tax status was to become a religion. Kind of like Scientology. And it also, uh, yeah, the same way Scientology, somewhat the same way Scientology came in. Scientology came into existence over a legal decision that said it was a fraud to make the representations that it would, of all its cures, that they could only make a religious representation of belief, but not scientifically. And so Dianetics ended in Scientology. It was born. And Synanon, it was... It was, we want to not pay taxes, so we become a religion. Now, another thing that they did was, now up to this point, you remember Diedrich's younger brother uh, dying of the flu and the role he had as a small kid? Diedrich walked away from his son and moved to California. He walked away from his daughter. Um, he had never shown any interest in kids. In fact, on tape recordings, you have him just basically say, he doesn't like them. And so inside Synanon, babies were taken from their mothers at six months and put in a hatchery where they'd be raised by the community and parents were discouraged from ever seeing their kids. They don't belong to you. They belong to Synanon. But by now, you've had kids who had grown up and been 18, and they basically leave. And Dietrich says, well, we spend all this money feeding and raising them, and then they leave. So we don't profit from this. So why do it anymore? So and he basically orders, um, you know, uh, starts a vow of childless to have no children. But first, he says, we're going to take in the teenagers who are, are troubled and apply the Synodon system to them. And the Synodon system was to put them in the game, make them work jobs into a strict punishments and a system of rewards and punishments and order to act a certain way or you will be punished. And... They then applied to juvenile departments and to the state and said, hey, don't spend your money putting these kids in juvenile hall. Send them to us and we'll fix them. And this became known as the Punk Squad. And these kids were streetwise and really didn't want to be there and wanted to get back. And so the Synodon system didn't work at all. And Diedrich got frustrated. He felt they or they should be respected by these punks. And so he ordered that you could hit them in the face, kick them in the ribs, knock them to the ground, and then just put them in a game to discuss them why they got treated that way. And they didn't get logs on it, which I have. I knew they beat up. And then eventually it spread to even the kids that were born there if they acted out. They could be sent 
subjects of this treatment. And then if, if a kid tried to escape, he was beaten, and if a kid tried to steal money or something to help him escape, uh, there's one kid, Clifford Zipperary, they brought him up on the stage, and four people were beating him up while it was played on the wire so that everyone could hear him screaming. Wow. Um, these are called a uh, carom shot that affect the behavior of one person. It spread. And then it was people who stole from Senanon to go out and teach them a lesson. And from there, it was just a short jump to anybody who says anything bad about Senanon, anybody who does anything to harm Senanon. And then Dietrich trained the Imperial Marines as a hit force to go out and get the enemies of Senanon, which is seen as lawyers, the media, or anybody who would say or do anything against Senanon. And that's how it went from nonviolent to violent. Dietrich even announced it in a press conference in 77 that the rule of nonviolence was no more. And you got caught up yeah. in the violence, right? Yes. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that. This is uh, Paul Morantz. He's going to finish up this incredible story about his involvement or his uh, knowledge of the cult Synanon in Santa Monica when we return on the next hour. Thank you. Hi, this is William Ramsey. We're back with uh, Paul Morantz, Attorney Paul Morantz. We're finishing up his discussion uh, about Synanon, so he has some clips he'd like to play for the audience. Paul, do you have those well, clips? That, it, yeah, it's three clips from three different groups, and it's if you don't believe that um, brainwashing exists, um, you may have a different opinion. You know, they say pictures, you know, worth a thousand words. These three tapes may be more than my book um, because it's real. And so, first is this is Jonestown, and the setting is before they they take the Kool Aid, and um, people are giving testimonials to Jim Jones, and one man says that he will lay down his his life, and uh, but not his daughters. And then Jones uh, gets the crowd to sort of convince him that he should kill his daughter, which he finally, if you listen carefully, he says that she'll die too. And then everyone starts celebrating. It's pretty hard to believe. When I teach at USC, I actually found that my audience, it was very hard for the students to listen to this tape, so I kind of warn you. Father went on and on into the night, his congregation scared and confused and worried. He needed them now even more. They responded often with shouts of praise and murmurs of amen and lined up to come to the microphone to testify to their love for him and their love for socialism, a love so pure they would do anything to prove it, commit suicide even kill their children. How do you feel about it? You may die tonight. Dad, from 68 to 69, the capital sent me to Vietnam to fight a war that I didn't know anything about. I had no principle to die in that war. You have saved my life so many times, Dad. Now I don't have no life of my own. I'm living on your time. 
I would die for you right now, Dad. I'm willing to face the front line with you right now. Thank you, Dad. Since I've been here, I've, I've all I've seen is the beauty of socialism, and I feel that my life is fulfilled. And if death comes, it's no, it's no big deal to me because I've already lived my life just being here with the family. Thank you, Dad. Thank you. We were, we were trying to light candles, not push buttons. I'm, I'm prepared to die for this family if I have, have to for freedom. Thank you, Dad. I'm also prepared to die after 44 years of uh, not being able to uh, contribute anything to this life or finding any point or reason for it at all. And uh, not being well known uh, at all, there sure would be no glory in it. But uh, for the children here, for the freedom, as long as there's one remains on this earth that isn't free, none of us are free. And I'm prepared to give my life if need be. No, I'd give mine in the place of hers. Well, would you like her to be taken by the fascists, then? Hold it now. You worked out on a sensitive point. Think about it. They brought up a sensitive question, and you may not understand the gravity of that question, but all of our children have faced this. We went through white nights, so they'll not be hurt by it. We haven't had any child cause us any difficulties by facing this kind of thought. Jerry, the question would be, if the fascists were coming up the road right now and we were going to lay down our lives and fight for it you say you would give your life for your child's but would you leave it for the fascists to have what would you do in that case came to that i would have to take her life fine you understand that you understand that when you but she's she's so old she'd fight how old is your child? Eleven. And she passed the age. We fight at eleven. It's under that that we consider that. She would take up a cutlass and fight till she was dead. Unless it came to an overwhelming invasion, then we would gently put them to, to sleep, which we have, but they never know what hits them. We are already prepared for that. A people who are really loving and a father who's genuinely compassionate is prepared for all such emergencies. But you don't do that as long as there's alternatives in which you can make a mark. You don't do that unless there's alternatives. All alternatives are closed for you to make a mark against fascism. Um, yes, I think you all should die tonight if it's our turn. I'm willing, Father, to stand with you all the way, just like I always have told you three years ago, of everything seems and will. Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. I wonder who did this. The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you got me into here, Michael? I need more time! I can't do it at any of this. You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. I wonder who did this. The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you got me into here, Michael? I need more time! I can't do it at any of this. You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. Always be the same. I'm not changing. 
You don't need to say. You don't need to say no more. I, I, I remember your fight. I love your father. I know you do. I know some of my people that others go. I felt like this. I hate you. When you hate you, you hate me. I tell you the truth. I'm not gonna lie. Mm-hmm. You're the only father I have. It's the only family I have. I Sorry, give up my brother. I remember you fighting. You you. I remember when you sang, I never heard him. Sing it for us right now. I'm going to sing it for you. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born, I never heard a man speak like this man before. I never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born. I never heard a man speak like this man before. Come on, sing. Never heard a man speak like this man before. The days of my life ever since I've been born. Never heard a man like this man before. That's true. Wherever in the hell it's brought us, it brought us on principle, it brought us on courage, and it brought us to the right place. I never heard a man speak like this man before. I never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born, I never... Louder, louder! Clap your hands. I never. I never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of this life, ever since I've been born, I never heard a man speak like this man before. Now make your sound move. a mistake to try to come in and take any one of us we will not let you you will die you will have to take anybody over all of our dead bodies what you heard was 900 people singing themselves to their death it's amazing it's an amazing clip yeah um next one is um this is the center for healing therapy and when people were brought in they were made to go for two weeks every day to meet with a therapist in a room they don't allowed to watch tv or do anything wear makeup and it's called their intensive and in this one um, the patient tells the therapist that he beat someone blindfold in the chest and the therapist says but you knew you could do it you set him up and when he uh, 
refuses to um, uh, agree with that, um, you'll hear what happens. Okay. No, I didn't set them up. Did you think you played you play better than me? Yeah. I wasn't sure. I'd be sure not having a fight without him. Fuck it, do it! Stop it! Don't do that again! One more fucking time, and I'm gonna rip you apart! That's a uh, no, that's a clip from the Venice Center for Feeling Therapy. Joseph Hart, who actually was teaching at USC at that time, and they actually when they started, they were teaching at Irvine and recruited a large part of their class to join the Center for Feeling Therapy. The person that you heard attacked on that tape stayed there for nine years. Therapeutic community, remarkable. They controlled, you know, who they lived with, who they could have sex with. They had to get permission to break up or assign jobs. It was pretty uh, amazing. And then, uh, uh, now, uh, this one here is, this was seized. Second, this was seized by the L.A. Police Department on a search warrant at Synanon and after the attack on me. And 
Synanon, knowing they were coming, had moved tapes out, cleaned it up, and as and they didn't really find anything, but as one officer was leaving, he spotted three tapes, cassette tapes, and a rubber band that had fallen behind the cabinet. And when he swung got home, it was labeled, Don't Fuck With Synanon, the New Religious Posture. And this was the key evidence to convict Dietrich. Okay. So here it goes. I, I, I keep thinking of, of, of the militant posture. Uh, militant, and don't tread on me something like that. That's what I think. Is, uh, I think we must do that. I think we must do that. I 
God for doing that, okay, taking our best people for the end of this kind of situation. Uh, and uh, it is our intention to do just exactly that. We're not going to mess with the, the old time, turn the other cheek, and really just posture. Our, our previous posture is don't mess with us. You can get killed dead, physically dead. And we're going to crack some bones. Not too many, you don't have to. Move the man. And uh, we're, we're going to react to, to all aggression toward us. We either, we either think we have a good thing here or we don't. If we have a good thing here, then we're not going to permit people like like greedy lawyers to destroy it. We're going to make certain that they don't and that their friends know about them. That's remarkable. Well, what year was that? Yeah, and you know, it's remarkable, but I'm listening to it. So, Who's the he sound most like that you've been hearing talking somewhat similar to that? Well, that you guy, know, that Dieterich, sounded a lot like Jim Jones to me. Very aggressive. Well, yes, but I'm talking about in the recent last oh. year. Oh, I think that Trump, Trump, Trump. Yes. You know, we're going to bring back waterboarding. We're going to do a lot more. We're not going, we're going to, you know, uh, make America great again by, you know, right. what we're going to do to our enemies, you know. Right. I want to stop the libel laws, you know. It's, um, it's, it's one of the reasons I'm frightened is because I've heard this tape and I could see, you know, similarities. Do you know what year that was? That he yes, it was September, September 5th, 1977. 77, so it was like but, Yeah, but the, there was... This was at Morning Court, in Morning Court in Sinanon. They, Dietrich would have the microphone be played on the wire, be over breakfast, and it would be replayed over and over again. But they would write down summaries of his speeches at Think Table, and later when Dietrich was arrested, they had his Think Tables for all of 77, through to the present, and from the summaries, you can see that this was a constant theme repeated over and over again at, at morning court, what they're going to do to the enemies. And, right. Well, he repeats and, himself, too. That's kind of like a rhetorical strategy, too, is to impart that upon people yeah, by he, just saying, we're going to, it's a new, different posture. No more, turn yeah. the other cheek. He just sees that over. How long did that yeah, take for? Uh, well, I just paid you, uh, you know, part of it. How long but is this? It went on. What? Like thirty uh, minutes? Would he drone on for hours? He might. Hours? He, he, he could go on for because he could, can go from subject to subject. You know, there was another tape that they seized uh, called the Freebies Are Over, which planned how they're going to get the money out of Cinnamon to their private pockets. Gotcha. Um, and uh, but um, what's amazing is later is in the tape is. Uh, one of the lawyers speaks up and, you know, it's like, and uh, talks about me. And so you realize that makes it so chilling is you can hear people, you know, having breakfast and listening and joining saying yes. And there's nobody who says, wait a second, we can't kill people. Right. You know, 
Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> well, let's go it, back. Let's it, go back to where we... think it's crazy, but it's not. Well... You know, yeah. it, 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 it's the way human beings are. It explains. Cults are microisms, a larger society. When you really study them, you sort of understand what happens in nations at a bigger level. You sort of understand, you know, why ISIS was so predictable a result from the Iraq war. You know, you understand uh, how people polarize, um, particularly when they're attacked, you know. Right. And I think it had a lot to do with the way the election went, you know, was the, uh, you know, if you, if you look at my book, you know, it was written 2011, it came out in 2012, mm -hmm. and I said, what does the future hold after the economic chaos in 2008? Right. The fear over loss of jobs that modern technology has and the globalization and then the ability for someone to rally people through social media. You know, what right. will the future hold? Of course, I never said, you know, the person, well, oh, that was very portentous because uh, Trump clearly is playing off of people's fears and he's a master yeah, of social yeah, media. He's, 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 yeah, yeah, they it, say he's it, one it, of the best users think, of social media they've ever seen in a political sense, sending tweets all well, the it, way. It, it, it may be, but what was more interesting to me in one sense was that, you know, the media took Nixon down. Bush had this high rating and then when they finally woke up the media took Bush down. But Trump, the media exposed him uh, way before the election. I mean, uh, nonstop. I was just wondering, well, who's reading Time, Newsweek? Who's listening to John Oliver? You know, I mean, it's uh, it, it was it was hard. But now I sort of realize that it's what George Orwell said and Eric Hoffer that, you know, when people are afraid and they're losing their freedoms and they're worried about themselves, you know, they want someone who's going to bring a boot down on somebody's face. Yeah. And that's been history. In fact, see, if you look at it, it starts before the president election. We're just not paying much attention. Greece has an election, and what sort of neo-Nazis come in and take over Greece and say we're not going to allow non-Greeks in here anymore. You know, in Germany, that the chancellor is getting in trouble for taking in too many Muslims. In in in, in British, you know what they did. So there's all sorts of signs worldwide right. that people are turning. You know, and of course, in, in you know Russia, you know when. Democracy was given, but without much of a plan. You know, the starvation and the uh, lack of support, you know, is bring, you know, bring us button. Yep. And so it's not actually, if you look at it, it's not really that great of a surprise. I just didn't think, I thought the difference in the United States and elsewhere is our free media. And, um, and I have, it's the first time I've sort of seen it not protect us. Well, I think that they attacked Trump pretty viciously. I, in my opinion, they were after him all the time, but it didn't seem to resonate with people. I think it may have actually worked no. against them because that solidified people's position like, oh, they are all a cartel. Yeah, but also I think that, I think <clears throat> that uh, the Democrats underestimated just 
how much people were fed up with the Clintons. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, I mean, she was a big part of it. I don't, think, I don't think Hillary yeah, she Clinton was horrible. Was, yeah, she's not a great candidate. She's not a great candidate. I mean, no, Trump no, is a lousy fact, candidate. In so, fact, she was a lousy candidate, and what she did most of the time is drop to his level and get in a pissing fight with him. That's true. And he's much better at it than she is. Yeah. You know, she needed to keep it, like, you know, just go on, Donald, but I'm going to talk about issues. And yeah, what my when she said are. deplorables and called them deplorables, that's when I knew she was going to be in deep trouble. Because then she really alienated people against him. Half of his supporters are deplorables. Those are the people who are going to go out and vote. She right. just incentivized people who are on the fence to vote against her. So I think that was a big well, mistake. that's the sense that the Clintons were arrogant and, you know, think that they're sort of royalty yeah. and they've been making too much money. And uh, I think there was a lot of that, you know. Yeah. Hi, this is William. We took a little break and returned to the subject of Synanon and Charles Dieterich. Thank you. All right, Paul Morantz, if we're back, can you please uh, follow up where we left off and talk about uh, the Imperial sure. Marines and their association with Sinanon? In the tape that uh, I know is going to be played um, here or has... Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. Oh, who did this? The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you got me into here, Michael? I need more time! I can't do it at any of this. You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. T-Mobile has been building America's largest 5G network for this epic 5G moment. Introducing the new iPhone 12 Pro. Now at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Download, upload, and game at 5G speed in more places. Unleash the power of iPhone 12 Pro with T-Mobile. Capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or feature. See T-Mobile.com. He talks about they beat up the Danuba punks and the San Francisco punks and were throwing people downstairs in Santa Monica. They had already, by 75, began to beat up people. In Santa Monica, they took them down in the basement. And um, the Danuba punks were some young kids who um, uh, managed to make the mistake of hitting a Sinan post up in Visalia. Their car went running and they came back to get it with some friends. The car had been moved on Sinanon property. And when they went on there, the doors closed and people came out with clubs and handles and hospitalized the kids. And um, the same thing happened in San Francisco. And things like that also happened in Santa Monica. A kid slept in a van and sat on a parking lot so he'd go surfing in the morning. I think he was 17 or 18. And they surrounded the van, took him out, and beat him up. Later, uh, two black couples in the same car came in looking for a parking space, and they were attacked, mercilessly beaten. And um, uh, Dietrich on the tape says, we're going to get better at this. And so in April of 1977, um, 12 to 15 people are put on a list to pick up to pick to be Imperial Marines in a depot flats in uh, Visalia next to Sinan's airstrip. Uh, they commenced training to become Imperial Marines, being taught by an ex 
uh, sergeant in the military, and then ultimately by a doctor, Doug Robeson. And um, they learn about rattlesnakes, and they catch them, and they learn about Dr. Robeson tells them how they, the rattlesnake can kill a person. And uh, they are taught that their mission is to protect Sinanon and to go out and get the enemies. And uh, then the Imperial Marines started doing just that. And for me, I guess it was the summer of 78 and June of 78, um, uh, I got three kids out of Sinanon. By then, Sinanon had purchased three. $305,000, according to some reports, of weapons, you know, shotguns, 357s, um, you know, high-powered scope rifles. And when I got this order for get these three miners out of Sinan to a grandmother, father had left and the mother had died, so they were sort of abandoned. And then I contacted the San Francisco Police Department. I told them, there's one thing you should know. And this guy said, what's that? And I said, they've got more weapons than you do. And so 11 police cars sitting on that by now at a facility in San Francisco, and we talked them to grandmother to allow a visit and talked them to bring the kids to San Francisco. And they didn't know we had the court order. And the police said, go and enforce the court order. And... Um, they said no, and the next thing, 11 uh, police cars had surrounded them, and rifles and, and guns were all pointed at Sinanon. And at that point, Sinanon gave up, gave up the kids. And and now, you know, Sinanon's aware that I've done this. Uh, so I struck again, you might say. Gotcha. You know? And, you know, the other big thing was is that you know, I knew that people had to know about Sinanon, and I didn't know when I was going to get a trial date. So, you know, I tipped off the media, and the media, you know, was following the cases and stories were appearing about Sinanon. And, um, and then in September, uh, I won a $300,000 judgment for that woman. And I thought maybe at that point it might be over. But um, on September 19th, Phil Ritter, who had been trying to get his child out and also who had gone to the authorities about forced vitectomies and synonym when Dietrich declared there was no more children. And um, he came home and, and he was attacked, hit over the head with axe handles, he would have died, but someone walked by and saw it and started screaming and stopped the attack, and they ran away. And when that happened, I knew that um, I was in deep trouble. I had there had been a bill to exempt Sinan from all licensing. I'd worked to get the health department in there, not on the drug addict side of it, but on the side that they were taking in people like Francis who was pre-psychotic and went psychotic because of her being in there and that they don't have any license to treat, you know, mental illness. Right. And uh, uh, so now the, uh, Herschel Rosenthal was an assemblyman who worked uh, with putting through a bill to exempt 
Center on Law Licensing. Barbara Boxer was in a, uh, a Marin County um, a councilwoman, and she had somebody in the county council call me and request that I go to Sacramento to defeat the bill. She was kind of afraid because they were constituents. And Marin County was very sparse in those days, a small little town in the size of Spinanon. It was intimidating everyone, particularly with the meetings. Right. And uh, so I went, and, and the bill got defeated in the last committee by one vote. So when Phil Ritter got attacked, I knew that if they would do that to Phil Ritter, I was in big trouble because they would want me. I would be enemy number one. Right, and they had so, said, and uh, Dieterich yeah. had said on the wire, he said, who is this guy, Morantz? Why didn't someone break his leg? So he had said threatening things about you probably without your knowledge at the time, right? Well, I, I had heard that. You know, people from who had been in Sinanon and came out and came to see me, you know, told me he was saying things like that. So that wasn't really so much uh, new news. But a, a, a former Sinanon lawyer whose nephew was still in there called me and said, Paul, I've talked to some people in Sinanon, and they say that they're broadcasting your address on the wire. Wow. And that got me. At that point, I went and purchased a shotgun. I, um, my, I thought it was a very good idea, as I told the LA Times. I said, Cinnamon's going to try to kill me, and they printed it. And I thought, well, now they're not going to want to prove me right, so this should stop it, you know. Gotcha. Um, but I was wrong. And, you know, it was a very tough time from the moment of Phil Ritter's attack to the day that, uh, that I got it was an incredible uh, two and a half weeks sleeping with a shotgun by my side, you know, afraid someone, you know, if my dogs barked, you know, to, you know, go out in the backyard to, you know, jump if I heard a crack. I would search under my car before I started it. I would be so careful crossing the streets. And I remember I told Dave Mitchell, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Sinanon, that if it looks like an accident, promise me that you'll never stop investigating. Right, so you were expecting to be jumped or run over by a car or something like that. Yeah, I thought they would try to make it look like an accident because it was uh, to, uh, it would be so obvious if something happened to me, you know, I mean, it would be like, you know, behind the death warrant, you know. Right. And then what happened? I then? had, well, uh, Joe Musico, the one, Marines, said, you know, he'll blast me with a shotgun on the freeway, but someone else suggested, uh, putting rattlesnakes in my mailbox, and that's what they did. That's what they did. So you walked out to your mailbox in the afternoon. When did it happen? No, my, well, my mailbox was in the wall. I had returned from a meeting with a representative of, of the Governor Brown's Office Department of Justice. And, it was, you know, that's to say the Synod was trying to kill me. And by this time... A whole list of ex-Sinon people had signed a document about beatings and what was going on and gave it to the authorities because of what they did to Phil Ritter. So now there was starting to be this 
oh, maybe there really is something here. And they're meeting with me and LAPD Intelligence, which I had just helped with. If you read that chapter, yeah, I did, of course, in my book, yeah, and so the same LAPD guys that had asked me to help them with S, you know, believed me, and they were there and, and had this meeting, and uh, I came home from it and was tired. The World Series was coming on, and I just wanted to not think about it for a little bit, and I put my books down in the kitchen and a few short steps in the wall. Is the mailbox and the wall. There's an outside. You open the lid, mm -hmm. and in the inside of the house, you you open the lid like a fancy shoebox. Right. And the snake was coiled in there. Unfortunately for me, um, I was kind of vain in those days, and um, I didn't want to wear glasses. And contact lenses they were just hard, not soft ones, and. It kind of hurts, so sometimes I just didn't wear anything. I think that if I, my glasses were on order, if I had been wearing my contacts or wearing glasses, I think I would have seen what it was inside the grill, and I would not have gotten bit. But because um, it was blurry to me, I thought it was a scarf or an oblong package. You never would think a rattlesnake. And, of course, his tail was removed, so it didn't rattle. didn't rattle. I still look upon myself as stupid, and people say, well, no one would expect a rattlesnake in your mailbox. But I should have expected a bomb, you know, seeing an odd package in there. I mean, I should have gone down real close and inspected it. And if it was an odd package, you know, call for the bomb squad. Gotcha. I'm pretty stupid for some. What Your happened after it bit you? How did you, I mean, you were lucky to survive. How did you uh, save your life? Well, the first thing is, when I came home, my border colleagues, Tommy and Devin, would greet me at the door, and then they would go out and play in the front yard, so I'd leave the front door open, and about 20 minutes they'd come back, and then I'd close it. Well, they heard me scream, and they were coming charging full speed back to the front of the house. And the snake had recoiled on the floor, and so I had to, uh, I had to risk being bit a second time to get sort of over the snake and shut the door on my dog. And then I, I used to study when I was in elementary school, uh, sort of herpetology as a hobby, and I used to catch lizards and things, and I sort of knew that I was supposed to get ice. I tried, I knew I had to stay calm, and I, I, we opened the back door, I, I knocked out the wood piece that would keep the sliding glass door from opening so someone could get in. I went out the rear of the kitchen door and locked it as I went because I wanted to make sure that no kids came in, in the house. And then as I went out the back door, I started screaming to my neighbor to call an ambulance and that uh, uh, I had been bitten by a rattlesnake, you know, was sitting on. And uh, uh, apparently I was in the street pretty much screaming, and people came out, and they laid me down and put blankets over me. And as with luck would have it, one of my neighbors at, at, at the college he was at, he had just taken a a course on uh, what to do on a rattlesnake bite. Wow. And, uh, and 
he, you know, cut my hand and, and tied a tourniquet, took off his shirt and tied a tourniquet, and he may have saved my life. Wow, that's amazing. That's very fortunate. Yeah. Very fortunate. So, back then, that was a big story in the local news and the media, correct? Yeah. In fact, I remember, you know, they, they didn't have enough anti-venom, but I sent him off to the hospital. I got three miles, and then was transferred to USC, which was a snake. Snake capital, actually, treatment all the time. And I remember the doctor, you know, woman doctor came in and she sort of laughed and she said, How did a big, strong man like you get managed to get bit by a rattlesnake? And I said, It was in my mailbox. It was a murder attempt. And she looked at me like, What? And then all of a sudden she heard her noise behind her and she saw all the police like lighting up the hallway to protect me. Amazing. That's an incredible story. There's a picture of you in in your book in the hospital bed with tons of uh, photographers and guys from the media taking pictures of you. It's a pretty interesting. Yeah, it was a pretty amazing thing because, you know, it was like uh, at the time, even though I'd see, you know, see some new stuff on TV, I had no idea what was going on in the outside world. I didn't really have quite the sense of what a, that this was the biggest news story in the world at this point. And uh, so when they told me that they were taking me in the room to talk to some press, I just expected, you know, a few media, media people. And when when I was wheeled into that room, I was shocked, you know. That was a big story. Unfortunately, I, I, Please unfortunately I gave such a big big speech about how there was going to be more violence and, and more cult violence that uh, that two of the people who were there went to Jonestown and died. That's, that's a remarkable, yeah. remarkable story. They, you even merited a comment from William S. Burroughs, who said, yeah. Hardcore Synanon members still believe the media put that rattlesnake in Paul Morantz's mailbox to discredit Synanon. Is there any limit to brainwashing, William Burroughs wrote. Yes, yeah, some of a famous quote. Yeah. Yeah. I feel kind of honored, you know. I always remember uh, Chevy Chase's comment on Saturday Night uh, Live. What did he, he say? Well, he was, you know, he used to do this newscast where he was a newscaster, and he said, uh, today, Sinon, they probably have it announced that it's Christmas going out of business cell, so send in your checks early to get a rattlesnake for your very own mailbox. Wow. Oh, I didn't, yeah. didn't hear that. Yeah, it becomes sort of a, a national joke, you know. Another one was, uh, you know, why why did a thousand Synanon people uh, commit suicide? Why? To keep up with the Joneses. Oh, oh my gosh! So what yeah, was the, what was the fallout from the rattlesnake bite, and how did that affect Synanon? Well, you know, Synanon is. Pretty amazing. Um, Dan Garrett, who was the head of the Senate Legal Department, who had, uh, you know, trashed and defeated everybody, finally got, he took it over running Senate because Diedrich was now stone drunk and, you know, was put in jail and everything. And when Diedrich sort of came out of it and found Garrett in control, he sort of pushed Garrett out. Howard Garfield had left just before the attack and or in San Francisco, a lot of people believe it was because of they were planning the murders, and some people also think that he 
that there might have been some conversation about group sex. You know, on December 77, Diedrich, after his wife died, ordered all the couples to change partners. And so uh, they didn't know what he was going to do next. But So Phil Burdett sort of inherited it, and there was an onslaught of litigation that was sitting on in the criminal case. You know, there's a very short side story to this that is kind of interesting, if you want me yeah, to. Yeah, please do. Please tell me. In 1975, I think it was, they opened the Federal Public Defender's Office in Los Angeles. They didn't have one until then. They only had the state public defender. And a man who had been framed by uh, a detective of Buena Park and spent two and a half years in the federal penitentiary, a private investigator for this new office was able to proved the frame and got him released from prison and they arrested the crime lab guy who manufactured the evidence against him. And I went to do a story. You know, I remember I was doing magazine article writing and I wrote this for Coast Magazine. And um, I went and interviewed the very first man to serve as, as federal public defender and his name was John Vandekamp. And... Um, we sort of hit it off, and then he called me to tell me how much he liked the article. And I said to him, you know, John, I know that you're going to be a politician. I know that this is just your first stepping stone. And I said that uh, I hate politics, but I believe in you. And I said, if you ever need to... Um, have a volunteer, or you need volunteers for something when you when you make your move to run for offices, um, you can call on me. And he never did call on me. But when I got to Rattlesnake, Don Vandekamp was the district attorney of Los Angeles. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they and I never knew that, uh, that, you know, Vandy Camp assigned the three best deputies in his office in you know, major crimes went into, you know, they were working on the Hillside Strangler, but now they're working on Sinanon. You know, it was pretty amazing the job that the police and that the district attorney's office had done. What criminal there. charges were filed against Sinanon? What's that? Do you know the criminal charges that were filed? Were they convicted? Yes, conspiracy to, to commit uh, murder, and also uh, Diedrich was charged with ordering a kidnapping of somebody. Gotcha. But uh, but the story of how Sinanon ends, Sinanon is to the guilty pleas for 1980, mm -hmm. and Sinanon is not only surviving, but they're getting richer. Uh, people are still uh, sending uh, money to... Um, For the uh, merchandise, right? For the merchandise. Merchandise, and they're making, yeah, making money. I think you even had somebody on your show who, you know, uh, didn't die in Jonestown who joined Synanon after the Ralph thing. Yes. Yep, yep. So the... Uh, what happened was is that you're supposed to have three square meals a day. Thankfully, there's three varieties of Wiener Schnitzel's new tater scoops. Delicious scoop-shaped fried potatoes, each with its own savory toppings. 
There's double cheese tater scoops covered with ooey gooey cheese sauce and zesty shredded cheddar. Then try the chili cheese tater scoops with hot and hearty chili and cheddar. And there's cheesy bacon tater scoops smothered in cheese sauce, grilled onions, and crispy bacon. Upgrade your fries to Wiener Schnitzel's new tater scoops and you'll never miss a meal again. Finally, in 82, I have to tell an interesting little story. I'm do it. sorry it goes back, no. but, the, but it, it's worth it. No, do it. No, your stories are fantastic. In, ni- in 1978, Peter Bourne is the sort of uh, drug czar and, and uh, consultant of President Carter and very good friends with her, his sister, who, if you know, was sort of into the self-help stars and she was like know. a new ager right yeah yeah she she invited warner Earhart to to come to you know s to the white house and she you know also through born opened invitations to Sinanon. so Sinanon goes to washington dc and puts a down payment to buy the boston house and the boston house this is in summer around, you know, July of 78, mm-hmm. the Boston House is going to be the embassy to the White House. And Sinanon then first tries to buy out the tenants to leave and then starts to using terrorism and physical threats on the other ones to get rid of them. One of the people that did that, too, was an aide to Adlai Stevenson. That, he went to the media... Uh, NBC had done a segment three on Sinanon, and so now the media is hanging outside the Boston House. Diedrich and Garfield come out, and Diedrich goes after a photographer with a cane, I think, and a arrest warrant goes out for Diedrich and Garfield. And at that point, Sinanon, they all flee. In fact, they go to Italy. And it was there in Italy that Dietrich began drinking again. And he was like off for 17 years or something, right? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people think that that's where he gave the orders on Ritter and, and me. But then soon on, they started drinking. So, um, um, But that was in your... I, uh, yeah. Okay, so, so now, Sinanon sues the owner of the Boston House Bernstein to get their security deposit back saying that uh, he didn't tell them the truth about zoning laws and that they were having problems and he says I'm not giving deposit and he files a cross complaint against Senator saying you didn't tell us that you're a terrorist organization and you terrorized my tenants and, and drove them out and um, and he wants money now, that becomes very important, and the reason is, now, 1982, the IRS finally says, you know, you've got to pay taxes, you know, retroactively the last three years. And Synodon files a lawsuit to challenge that. And at that point, I get a conversation, a phone call from the Department of Justice, two lawyers, uh, Tom Lawler, and Frank Hurst, who were really, truly great lawyers. And they called me, but they didn't know anything about Synanon. I remember 
they told me later, I didn't remember, they said that when they called me and they said who they were from the United States Department of Justice, they said I responded, where in the fuck have you guys been? <laughs> so, anyway, they were there now. And uh, I then became a consultant to the United States Department of Justice. And it sort of changed direction. The case was sort of built around that time that the money that had been taken out of Sinanon into the private pockets of people and uh, to money paid over to Diedrich's bank account and to the fact that there was no charity purpose. But there's another rule of law that says that even if you are a charity, there's no absolute right to not pay taxes. We do that on the assumption that you're serving the public good. We give you this gift. So we are making like a contribution to your charity. But if you do things that are against public policy, well, then we don't want to make a gift to you, and you got to pay taxes like everyone else. The United States Supreme Court rendered this case in the case against uh, Bobby Jones University, which was uh, running a college that did not allow blacks to date whites. So they said, well, that's against public policy, so uh, we don't care if you're church-owned or not. You're paying taxes. And so what I said to them, I said, it seems to me like terrorism and trying to kill people is sort of against public policy. Right, good point. And by that time... By that time, we had this, we had the mass of documents of Sinanon, which is another story if you want to hear how how they were obtained. They were actually obtained by lawyers right in D.C. Um, that said, you know, beat them up, you know, we're going to go out and get the enemies, uh, you know, knock their teeth out, you know, all, all these documents. You know, Sinanon kept records on all their beatings and everything they did. I was able to identify from documents, I think. 87 or 88 beatings him. And that part of my book that you read gave details on the beatings were largely from sitting on documents. Interesting. That and police reports. And so, um, since we had all this in writing, and the tape that you, you know, that I've had you listen to, is was, you can make a summary judgment motion. There's no issue that Sinanon committed acts of terrorism and beatings, and Therefore, it's against public policy to have to be taxed, and their cases thrown out on a summary judgment motion. So they made that motion, and Sinanon is filing its opposition. And while that's going on, in that case against Bernstein, the one in Washington, D.C., right, over the Brown House, they hold, they hold a hearing in which former Sinanon members get on the stand and testify that after Diedrich was arrested for conspiracy to murder me, there started an operation in Sinanon to destroy all the tapes and get, or get them out and hide them and to erase references to their existence in their computer system. There was 11 days of testimony, and at the end of the hearing, the judge issued an opinion that Sinan was guilty of destroying evidence relating to the issue of whether or not they were a terrorist organization, that the legal department was part of it and with knowledge of, of Sinan, and said, therefore, they've they fought upon the court and denied the right to a fair trial and granted judgment to Bernstein. Now, there's a ruling in the law 
one exists, that if you lose on one issue in a case, you lose that issue on every case. We don't want second trials of issues where you can get conflicting rulings. So it's called collateral estoppel. Mm -hmm. If you have a clear ruling that the person is guilty of this, then in every case that's ever filed, he's guilty of this. So I actually wrote a letter. I didn't even realize that it was me until I happened to find it maybe a couple months ago. I wrote a letter to the Department of Justice that basically said, uh, you know, he was giving him advice, you know, suggestions on the summary judgment motion, you know, to draft of it. But I said, I said, because of the Bernstein ruling, couldn't we argue that it's against public policy merely for a charity to destroy evidence as to whether or not they're doing a charitable purposes or not. And that and that you don't have to even reach the issue of whether or not Synanon committed the violence. The fact that they destroyed the evidence relating to the issue in and of itself would be a violation of public policy. And they filed a second summary judgment motion on that issue, and when signed to the same judge, we or not had had Nixon tapes before him. <laughs> he must have thought it was a big deja vu, and uh, uh, he granted on that theory. He said that uh, I've been asked to 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 rule as a matter of law. Sunon was a terrorist violent organization. And he says, and there is the evidence for me to do that, but it's not necessary because Synanon destroyed evidence intentionally related to that issue and has lied to the court, you know, uh, about it. Uh, um, the IRS wins. Oh, that was 1984. Synanon filed appeals and went through the appellate court system but never got anywhere. And finally... Uh, the next lawsuit is for how much do they owe? And the judge hears that decision. He's, he's adding up what is the value of the squares living there and working for free? What is the value of this? And he's coming up with all these calculations and theories to total $55 million. I thought reading it, it what the judge was really saying was, uh, one plus one equals you don't exist anymore. Gotcha. <laughs> that was both the mathematics that right. he was using, you know. Right. And uh, and so sitting on a deal that and lost. And in 1991, 13 years after the rattlesnake, the doors of sitting on closed. Well, that was it. But that wasn't the last time you had heard, or you uh, heard or seen yeah, more image, right? Because you met him face-to-face, -face, correct? Yes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, it's actually in both my books. But oh. um, it was, um, um, there was this rancher in Visalia, uh, November of 1977. I remember when it happened because I, I got involved in June of 77. So when this story trickled down to me, it was... Really scary. Um, Ron Eitzen was a 50-year-old something, sort of redneck type, you know, cowboy living in Visalia, driving a truck, you know, to work and everything. And he had his 
three kids and his wife lived up in the Badger Mountains. He almost gets in a road accident with some Sinanon people, and some words are exchanged. And he goes on a fishing trip while Sinanon is taking witnesses in the car and driving onto people's farms looking for who this guy is. There are several encounters where, where guns were pointed at each other. And Dave Gilmore was bragging his mouth around to help us find this guy. We're going to beat him up. And if you ever have anyone bothering us and you want us want to beat up, let us know. You know, talk that was going on. And uh, finally, they, somebody sees Eitzen's wife and recognizes her. And there's a big chase scene. And she makes it back to her place and calls the sheriff. And when Eitzen comes back, he calls and gets uh, Doug Robeson on the phone and says, you know, what's going on? And, and uh, he said, we have a lot of people in here angry and mad. And I says, uh, I'll call you back. And he calls him back, and it was tape recorded. And in the tape recording, Robeson says um, that, um, that, you know, well, forget it if you apologize. And he says, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to apologize. And he says, well, I warned you. I'm not going to argue with you. That was your warning, you know. And at 12 midnight that night, they came to the ranch. And they held his family at gunpoint. His son, Jeffrey, I think, was 15. His oldest son took away his rifle. And and Eisen finally surrendered his because they had guns pointing at his family. And then they ordered the family back in the house, and then about four of them with rifle butts began stomping on Eitzen and said, we're going to kill you. Somebody says, you know, the cops may have figured that his wife had called the, called the sheriff. They said, you know, we probably should get out of here. And he lived. He's in the hospital for a long time, and he actually shared with the Dinuba punks. It was around the same Oh, it's not over punks, but he shared it with, with two kids who I think uh, they beat up at a fire station in hospital. So, so now it's um, 1980. 81 is 80, when you, yeah, 80 or 81, sorry. Yeah, it was 90, in 1980, um, Eitzen contacts a lawyer named Ed Martin in Los Angeles, says he's can't get a, a lawyer to take his case. And Martin calls me. It was actually Martin's idea. Um, but this, I be recall more this became kind of a recurring uh, event for you where if people had problems with cults or some type of experience, they would either through the grapevine or just through research end up calling you. Is that correct? Probably for me, this was more a situation like you're in a war, and you don't leave your buddies behind. Gotcha. You know, yeah. they had beaten up Edson. You know, uh -huh. they had, uh, this man had never gotten justice. It was like a hanging thread. Right. It was also necessary for me to say, this and on, you didn't chase me away. Gotcha. I guess my point, so, my point is, Paul, is I was just saying that from other cults, too, people would call you for advice or legal services as well. Isn't that true? Yes, yes. Okay, gotcha. yes. In fact, the Center for Healing Therapy had sort of popped up around 1980, and I sort of put someone else on the case just to 
to finish Edson, but the point that I want to tell you is that the statute of limitations back then was one year. This has happened in November of 77, and now we're in 1980. And so when Senate on, when we served them with the lawsuit, I used to fly up a six-seater air, airplane to us, tell you, take air sickness pills. The one is that what we argued is that the exception to the statute of limitations is if you do something to prevent the person from being able to file the suit. So what we claimed was is that that Sinanon, by doing the new religious posture and all the attacks it did and all its lawsuits and terrorizing Visalia, that every every attorney in Visalia was too afraid to take his case. And particularly when they tried to kill me, there wasn't any way of lawyers to take his case. So I said, that's why he didn't follow within the statute. He'd been trying all along. And now I'm here from Los Angeles to finally see he gets justice. You know, and it, you know whether or not we were so right on the law, but the judge rule in our favor. I personally think he was just so happy to see me. That's why that, someone was going to take him on. I believe it. And that's what led to your deposition Taking of these, Peter. These, yeah. Yes. Okay. So it was in that case in Visalia that I flew up to take his deposition. Now in the ABC litigation, Dietrich had already blurred out about Nixon saying that, well, some punk country bumpkin had, uh, you know, mess with our people on the road, so, you know, he had to be taught a lesson that our roads will be safe. You know, a gun butt on the back of the head in front of his family is a good way of doing that. So I figured this wasn't going to be a difficult case to try anymore. <laughs> you know, he already opened his mouth. And it was, um, it was sort of um, a curiosity thing. I wanted to understand why this happened. Right. I really spent most of the time questioning him about his past and his decision-making and, um, you know, to sort of get answers to questions that I wanted. Right, and that's the yeah, guy who, who, who ordered the snake attack upon you that almost killed you. Yes, yes. As I said in my book, uh, you know, I was dedicated to Diedrich because they had priced a hitman at $10,000, and he said, why spend the money? We have the Imperial Marines. We can do it ourselves. And with that decision, he saved my life. Fascinating. Did you have any uh, lingering after effects from the snake bite? Did that affect your arm or anything? Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Did, uh, well, so that was your time pretty much with Synanon. That pretty much ended it. Your contact and litigation with Synanon was that final Edson case there from Vesalia. Is that correct? Well, I also had a case, uh, Dan Ross, who was a member who who gave a lot of money to them, and they threw him out. And um, You wanted his I, money back? Yeah, he gave 25000 to take care of his mother-in-law, and then they threw him out. He didn't allow him to see his mother-in-law. And Diedrich was asked by Connie Chung, you know, that, you know, why would he do that? And he admitted it. He said, well, the media holds us back. He spoke to the media. Wow. Uh, and, and so, like, that, too, was a pretty easy opportunity. They also threw him out of the game because he wouldn't donate his last money, and they picked him up by the ear, and that game was tape-recorded, so we, we had the tape of that. 
Right. You, uh, so these were uh, you thank Connie, Connie Chung in the acknowledgments. Was that just because, just for her reporting, or did you have uh, kind of a personal, you know, did you stay in contact with her? I, I felt at the time that we had sort of a, a personal friendship, and you know, the big reporters were Connie Chung, Nardis Pino, and Dave Mitchell, who were making soon on their, you know, the thing, you know, Connie went up there and interviewed you, and I would call Connie and I'd say, you know, Chuck Diedrich has a crush on you, and I would tell her things that they were doing preparing for her. And, of course, I think I kind of liked that I could be at a party somewhere, and I'd say, watch this, and I'd, you know, take a phone and dial, you know, CBS, and I'd say, newsroom, please, and I said, Connie Chung is Paul Moran, and next thing, you know, I'd be, you know, putting the phone across the room, Connie's on, you know, the phone saying, well, and, you know, when I came back from the hospital, she came out of the front door of my house. Now, I would say that I find a loss in some ways that, that Connie and I have never spoken again since sort of the Sonata story ended. But that is something that you probably know as a journalist and that I know as a journalist. You do a story and you get very close with the people. And you think that they're going to be sort of part of your life forever. But then the story ends. A new story comes. You know, you may move to a new city, whatever. And and lawyers do the same thing, too. I go through a case, and I almost, like, adopt my clients as, as my children. And then one day, they're all gone, and you never see her. Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody, and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. Oh, who did this? The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you got me into here, Michael? I need more time! I can't do it at any of this. You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. Today's the day to save big and drive home a new Toyota. With huge factory cash back, like $3,500 back on a new 2020 Avalon. $3,000 back on Camry Hybrid, $1,750 back on Sienna, Highlander, and Highlander Hybrid, $1,500 on Camry. So hurry in today, and you can save big on many of the most popular Toyota models. Must take delivery from 2020 new car dealer stock by midnight November 2nd. We make it easy. Toyota, let's go places. So it's just the fact of life, but uh, I miss Connie Sean. So that pretty much ends your kind of Synanon adventure, but you had other contacts with kind of some of these other cult events, particularly Charles Manson, Jim Jones. Can you talk about your connection to the Charles Manson family? I was, um, in 1988, I was married, and, and I purchased a couple of books at the Rose Bowl swap meet on Manson written by former members, one of them by Tex Watson. And as I came home that night, my wife went to sleep and I was reading it in bed. I threw it up and hit the ceiling and started shouting. And uh, she said, she wakes up, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I go, he was my friend, he was my friend. I never had known it uh, for all that time. You know, because we never called him Tex Watson, and Watson was a common name. 
you know, I just knew him as Charles Watson. Gotcha. And we worked side by side when I was 22 years old, summer job before I went to law school, selling women's hair pieces. And so I'm reading it, and he says, I arrived, you know, in the summer of 68 in Los Angeles, and I got a job at Cadessa Creations on La Cienica. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I was there in 1968 at Creations. And my mind started racing. There was only four of us there. Right. You know, and so it was, it was a pretty startling thing. But he had stayed in that business. What, didn't he start like a hair business from the knowledge the He tried, he tried to start one. I did too, matter of fact, when I went to USC. I had an uncle who was uh, wholesaling hair pieces. They were popular, you know, in the 60s. Right. And so I would uh, let Ward know at sorting houses and stuff that I could, you know, get stuff, you know, but at cheaper when, prices. When you met Tex Watson, there was no indication of the future violence. Is that correct? I, he was, first of all, he was tall, not Tex, and he was Sorry. very straight and... Um, wore generally a suit when the rest of us were casual. He'd taken to some parties. A lot of the girls would invite us to parties. And, because um, we were basically selling, you know, women. And uh, he would be very quiet. Interesting. You know, it was like trying to, you know, wake him up. Hey, you're in Los Angeles now. You know, have fun. He hadn't yeah. adapted. He was still kind of the Texas guy. And uh, you also have a connection to Jim Jones. You had uh, referenced early that two of the uh, people who came to the hospital as journalists ended up at Jonestown. Can you talk about that and also your relationship to uh, Mr. Stone? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Tim Stone is the real story, you know, at Jonestown. And, you know, it's funny, you know, because it's the anniversary we're seeing movies and CNN specials and everything, you may want to ask me why there's not ever been a documentary on Synanon. I have a very surprising story to tell you. Okay. But the, um, uh, Stone, you know, you know, was a um, very liberal, you know, 60s type guy that, you know, based upon that liberalism and the counter, you know, the revolution of the 60s, was attracted to Jim Jones, you know, wanting to help the poor and uh, and becomes Jim Jones's lawyer. But slowly as he learns things and learns things and learns things, he leaves and then tries to warn people. And but he was meanwhile... A, how did you know him? Well, Tim heard about me and uh, he called, and in talking to him, it was like Sinon and Jonestown were the reverse sides of a mirror. You know, it was, um, they were the same thing, and doing the same things by the same methods. And, and so we were, you know, in a lot of dialogue about that, and also, you know, started sharing you know, strategy ideas. And when I was in the hospital with the rattlesnake, um, Stone left a message that he would fly to L.A. to, you know, help with my office while I was recovering, which was, I thought, pretty nice of him. If I 
had full use of both my arms, I might have gone to Jonestown. Although I like to think if I'd been there, it wouldn't have happened. You know, they were smart enough. See, 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 Stone had a custody order for his child that, just like Synanon, Jones made kids his property. So he couldn't get his kid out. And because he had an order for custody is one of the reasons, and maybe the reason, that Jim Jones went to Guyana so that uh, if he couldn't enforce the order. Gotcha. You know, they wouldn't have the United States, you know, order, and they, he was unsuccessful to get the Guyana government to do anything. So he came down on the plane with the senator, and um, but he stayed at the airport smart enough to know that that, that itself could trigger if Jones knew he was there. But on the other hand, if he if he had been there, it might not have happened. Just as I think that if I had been there, it might not have happened because um, Ryan made some mistakes. What What do you think somebody, his mistakes were? What do you think his mistakes were? Well, one was um, bringing the media in there at all. You know, unfortunately, politicians, you know, want the media to, you know, broadcast and publicize what they're doing so they to push for their political careers. You know, interesting, a lot of people don't know, but Ryan was pushing a petition to pardon Betty Hearst at the time. And he probably succeeded in getting that done by his own death. But the um, uh, the media, I would have said, even all the media at the airport, if you, that these guys believe that there's a great man in history. Diedrich went crazy over Time Magazine when, uh, when they did the story on changing partners. He expected to be man of the year, Time Man of the Year. He had people working to uh, nominate him for a, um, a Nobel uh, Nobel Prize. Um, the reason he tape recorded, is, the reason Jim Jones tape recorded, the reason Richard Nixon tape recorded, is that they all wanted to preserve it for history because they were the great men. So once you bring the media in there, you're saying to him, you know, you're going to be unveiled. We're here to, you know, for to let the world know. And so that was the first mistake. The second mistake is that when people asked to leave when they were leaving, is they went to Jones and told him. That was the second mistake. The What you would want to do is just tell the people, leave, walk out, you know, just go for a walk somewhere, go in advance, we'll meet you at the airport or something like that. But once you tell them that people are going to leave and they're going to leave with the media, they know what the stories are going to be from those people. Right. And that the jig is up. Right. And that's you know, what made Jones so, panic, yeah. Yeah, and that's what made Jones panic. And I knew enough at that time. I mean, the one that I really could have stopped was Waco. I mean, I was pretty angry when Waco happened because up until that point, if anything happened, the media contacted me, you know, government contacted me, my opinion was always asked, 
and Waco was the point where I sort of realized I was sort of forgotten. A new generation of media, you know, new sets of politicians. But God, I could, it's like if there was anything I could have ever saved, I could have stopped Waco. Uh, yeah, it's too bad. I mean, it's almost like the same kind of, same type of dynamic. People show up, people panic, then, you know, it goes goes wrong. You, I mean... Oh, yeah, if, you if you surround just like, you know, Jonestown, you know, once the jig was up, he took, went down and took everyone with him. Right. And, you know, that's what Hitler did. That's right. what, um, you know, Applegate does later. You know, it's Crash, part of uh, yeah. history. Yeah. yeah, so so with Crash, it was like, hey, you surround them. That's what's going to happen. You know, that's what the SLA did. Los Angeles. They wouldn't come out either. They burned. That's a good point. What, uh, and then this yeah. poor guy, Stone, his son ended up being a victim in Jonestown, correct? And you worked with uh, yeah, some it, of the representatives of some of the Jonestown yeah. families, right? Yeah, his son, his son died, yes. And then afterwards, I represented um, um, uh, uh, the... Um, a few of the families in the bank. Wasn't there a bankruptcy yeah. hearing or something? Or? The bankruptcy proceeding, I represented um, the father of one of the photographers who was killed at the airport, and I represented uh, relatives of many of the people who, who died. And uh, You ran into Melvin Bella. He was a famous San Francisco yeah, king of yeah. torts. That was, quite, that was quite an experience, because I tell you, I've heard legends about this man. And I was actually going to see him in person. And on the first day we were there, he gets up and he and he says, "I represent people shot, you know, at the airport, and they should get all the money because no one gets gets money for committing suicide." And he says, "If I can't prove that Jonestown killed these people, I'll surrender my bar card." And he put his bar card on the table. I was, you know, and I was next up, you know. Right. So I walked up following, you know, the great Melvin Belli. You know, this is a guy who, who once convinced a, uh, a jury that um, a woman in a bus case that her, she became, her damages were she became an nymphomaniac with a bus accident. That's right, I remember. Yeah. Well, he used to have, said, yeah, he used to have a pirate so, flag he would raise after a big uh, settlement. He would raise it. His offices, he had offices. But, yeah, right. yeah but, you know, he, he was at that time. I mean, Tom Girardi, I think, has surpassed him. And, but but at that time, he probably made more money than anybody in history in personal injury. So I was, uh, I came up after him and I said, well, as far as the suicides, if I can't convince that Jim Jones didn't brainwash these people into suicide, he could have my bar card, and I put my bar card on the table underneath uh, Melvin Bell eyes. Cool. The interesting thing was that uh, afterwards, you know, I went out, you know, had some drinks with him and stuff, and got to talk to him. And I thought, you know, this was just, you know, so great that, you know, I would, you know, get to do this. But I was sort of surprised that he was more interested in, in meeting me. Interesting. That's that's cool. And, and I think that I I was something so different because most lawyers it's all about you know how much money you can make and what your jury verdict was. And I wasn't someone. Mine was how many people I could put in jail and how many licenses I could revoke. And so I was sort of a different 
Different breed of lawyer, yeah. And that kind of brainwashing theme that you talked about in front of Melvin Belli was a common theme in a lot of your cases, was proving coercion or undue yeah, influence, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, I should say that the big thing was that uh, Dr. Robert J. Lefton wrote this book, The Psychology of Totalism, from studying the prisoner of war in Korea, and I read it. It's, he's a brilliant man. And uh, he's also a writer in a far greater sense of language than I do. A lot of people, he was hard to understand, but I understood it. I understood what he was saying, and that totalism, brainwashing, he, he explained, presented one of the great dangers to mankind. You know, that he even said it creates holy wars. And, uh, of course, they're going to call their thing the Holy War. And, of course, you know, today we deal with ISIS and everything. And right. it was, if you read his book and everything, or you read my book, you sort of understand it. Well, you uh, definitely cover the sec yeah. sec second book with Ted Patrick's uh, Let Our Children Go, the kidnapper programmer. And that told me the story of what was going on in the United States currently in, in, in the 70s. And when I read Patrick's book, while I did not necessarily agree with his methods, I remember it's just saying, I'm in. You know, I'm in for the long haul. Well, I mean, your book, Escape, My Lifelong War Against Cults, definitely proves that. Uh, we, you also cover so many other uh, elements of totalism of, of these, these groups, such as the Rajneesh, Moonies. Uh, you talk about L. Ron Hubbard. And you know some other uh, groups. He that left out. He left out Warner Earhart. And Est, right? That's correct. So yes. you Just, definitely. I thought he was. I thought he was the worst and the most dangerous, and had the most uh, long-lasting effect on society. Why do you say that? Well, he had the '60s, which was basically, you know, we're going to make the world right. We're going to undo. You know, uh, racism, we're going to give women's rights, gay rights, we're going to end the Vietnam War. You know, it's, uh, it's peace, love, you know, uh, generation. And, uh, Earhart comes along with the self-help group that he's a great salesman and promotion and that uses the sort of what I call a version of the Senate trip to break people down, attack them like you heard on that tape, you know, you're an asshole, you're you're this and that and you're nothing and, and be torn apart and to be and just like in Synodon to be kept up uh very late so that you dissipate, you know, you lose your 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 ego so to speak. And um you know, of course if you pay three hundred and fifty dollars you're halfway there before you, you go in because you want your money's worth. You want, you don't want to say I didn't get it, right. and uh, and while Scientology or Synanon or Rajneesh or Jonestown have a campsite, you know, and people, it's limited in number. Earhart sought to emphasize the world, and in all the others, I never really cared about uh, their philosophy, so to speak. It was a question of brainwashing and control. But in Est, its philosophy was anti-golden rule, in my opinion. Take from others and take from them first. 
Right. You know, it was it was all right to be selfish. It was all, you're the controller of your universe, and and if you uh, stole from somebody, it was their fault that they let you steal from them. And it was all right to do whatever makes you happy to get past the mind. There's no right, there's no wrong. And he actually went as far as people that want to right wrongs are just wasting time. Well, I took that kind of personally, you know. And um, uh, but I saw the world change at that point. You know, uh, S was was highly popular, and it was having an effect on. You know, finally, by the 70s, or, you know, we changed from hippies to yuppies. And into the 80s, greed is good. You know, and to me, it all sort of stems back to the, to starts with, uh, with S. Interesting. But somewhat was, you know, greed's okay. You know, take, get what you want. And nothing really matters. Now, it was the perfect, um, thing for Earhart because here's a guy who abandons his wife and four kids at the age of 24 and hops on a plane with another woman, changes his name to Walter Earhart, and a stolen car makes his way out west and only reunites with his original family when he's become so famous, becoming so famous that he knows he's going to be spotted and recognized until I find him. So he has to go back and then say, well, you can all be rich, you know, come out to Los Angeles, you know. Um, How long did he last he, for? Did he, is he still in, didn't he rebrand and become something? S became Landmark Foundation or yeah. something, right? Yeah. Yes, after he split to Europe, after the 60 Minutes show and the allegations were made, he was brainwashing it. Uh, abused his son and, and one sister, although I thought it's rather skimpy evidence, um, accused him of sex with one of her, one of her sisters. But um, uh, I don't think it's I don't, I don't think it's functioning as it as it once did back then. I mean, it was definitely I remember. Well, I think I, I think there was a bigger discovery out of the success of Landmark, and that was is that. Um, and followed by another guy, uh, Ed Sieg, uh, a guy who broke away from us and, and involved his own group, and I, of course, ended up suing that one, too, because he was having sex with all the women, and I alleged that it was a form of psychotherapy, so therefore he can't do that. Uh, but uh, when you went from S to Landmark, what is sort of said is that and you sort of see it now, even so more apparent, is that you really don't need to brainwash. You know, you don't really need to do that attack therapy that Sanan did, that S did, and the Roshanish did. Uh, it's like, just get up there and say nonsense gotcha. and emotional things, you know, and people will cheer, and there'll be a group attachment. You don't have to do all this stuff. I, and I, I think Landmark was sort of one of the first times that you sort of saw that. Yeah, know? and I remember you wrote in your book that there's a pool of people looking for that kind of yeah. uh, self-actualization. So these guys can just get a different group of people every time with 
you know, every generation or diff different area. Right. I thought that was an interesting well, they all, observation. They all, they all move on. Now, you know, you understand that, um, that um, Earhart, uh, the mayor of uh, Parlier, took the yes, training and felt that he got it. And he went to Earhart and said that our community, North of Fresno, is having problems. Could you possibly help? And he agreed to train the entire community for nothing. And uh, Father Lopez was a... Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. Oh, no, do this. The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you got me into here, Michael? I need more time! I can't do it at any of this. You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. Showtime presents the new limited series, Your Honor. Dad, I hit somebody, and I left him there. Starring Brian Cranston. Don't tell anyone. I can keep you safe if no one hears about it. There are some truths worth lying for. Oh, no, do this. The city is waiting. Send a message. What have you got me into here, Michael? I need more time. I can't do it at any of this. You have to, or we die. Your Honor premieres December 6th on Showtime. Uh, sort of leader of the underground, not sort of liking it, because apparently, to make an example, one of them kicked the Bible, and this was a very, you know, uh, Christian community, yeah. farm workers, and um, they called Margaret Singer, who was an expert in brainwashing cults in San Francisco, and she called me and said, Paul, will you hop a plane to Parlier? And so I went. This was in June, I think around June of 78, and uh, it was pretty horrible because it was, to me, it was like I couldn't imagine this is what happened in Nazi Germany. They had graduates spread out in the crowd to clap and cheer at the right moments and try to whip everyone else into clapping and cheering. But the people, if they picked Malibu or Beverly Hills or somewhere like that where they're, you know, into the more head trips, they might have been successful. But this was a poor farming community. and uh, They weren't having, they weren't having they, it, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them, they spoke Spanish and they weren't having it. And, uh, and as the trainer was realizing that the crowd was getting more and more hostile, he said, do you understand that we have a contract to do the entire Los Angeles Police Department? And when I heard that, you know, I realized what my job is done here. It's time to go back to L.A. Right. And Gate, Gates, was the, to uh, Gates was the the head of the L.A. Yeah. at the time, right? Yeah, my, yeah, my old buddy, Daryl Gates. You know, it's funny, but after this was all over, there was a time I was with a date at a restaurant, and they were kicking us out, and folks, they were going to do a comic roast, and I asked somebody, well, who's subject, and they said, Daryl Gates, and I quickly turned to this guy, I said, are you one of the comedians who's going to be roasting him? He said, yeah, and I said, I'll give you one right now. He said, okay, and I said, uh, what does... Uh, Narrow and Police Chief Gates have in common. What's that? They both fiddled while their cities burned. That's right. That's perfect. Well said. Yeah. So, I only wish I could have hung around to 
to see his face. And, well, I, and I told him when it's all over, tell him that that Paul Morant. You know. <laughs> well, didn't you didn't you at one point get recognition from one of the city attorneys for your work in the Sinanon case? I remember reading that in your book. It was uh, they gave you a standing ovation. What was that at? Um, uh, Mike. Um, um, who was uh, the? One attorney's representative uh, was retiring, oh, and um, I was invited. And um, and Vandy Camp was sort of the MC of it. Uh -huh. And you know, Vandy Camp went on to be attorney general, president right. of the state bar, and he you know, ran for governor, but he didn't win. And um, and uh, he said that uh, he started recounting Mike Carroll's career. And it's, you know, and to say probably the biggest case was the prosecution uh, sitting on Chuck Dudrick. And, uh, and he says, and Paul Rance is here with us today. And uh, at that point, uh, I got a standing ovation. And I really was surprised. I just really was. I remember later the current attorney general came over to meet me and shake my hand. And then when Mike finally spoke, he said the thing he'll remember most about the office was the courage of Paul Moran. Wow, that's amazing. How many years later after Synanon, the Synanon case? It was 2000. It was oh, 2000. Okay. Was yeah. So nine years after they were gone, it was... I guess uh, 22 years after the state. You know, in 2013, Santa Monica gave me a, a plaque. Cool. Uh, but I never received much from... Los Angeles, or not sure anything about four times the movie was almost made twice green lighted, but for very, very different reasons. Well, you were going to say, made. why hasn't a documentary been made about the, uh, why not? I've been approached approach six, seven times for documentaries. Of course, now the guy who's making it is actually from England, but they, um, uh, here's the thing, 1972, the San Francisco Chronicle was a story on Synanon calling it the racket of the century. Pretty accurate story. The idea of it was it wasn't any drug rehab and it was all going into hot tubs and, and uh, lifestyle. And um, Synanon, at that point actually formed their legal department in Dan Garrett and Garfield, I mean, as a result and a reaction to that teacher named Toilets, uh, excuse me, I said the Chronicle of San Francisco Examiner. Examiner, back in the day. And he, yeah, he, he called the, the uh, Toilets Examiners, and... Um, we used to call the Chronicle, sued, the Chronicle the Comical. Yeah, well, they sued... You know, William Randolph Hearst, who soon has his own problems with, you know, Patty running around with the SLA. Right. But the real problem of the case was is that the guy who wrote it had been fired by William Randolph Sr. for fabricating a story inside China that he wrote from um, Hong Kong Bar. And uh, later he had set time in prison on fraud and... Uh, Somehow, William Randolph Jr. hires him back, and it turns out he's only got one source, 
and this is really not a good situation for the examiner. To make things worse, the uh, examiner lawyers apparently hire some um, ex-Synon people to verbalize Synon and steal some tapes, and they get caught and prosecuted and found guilty. And so at this point, um, there's a settlement for uh, $600,000, which Synon claimed at that time in 76, when they said there was the highest libel settlement in the United States that was put in the Guinness Book of Records. I remember that the next year when I came into it, I called lawyers for examiner. They wouldn't even speak to me. But they said, good luck. Wow. That's, you know, they wished me good luck, but they wouldn't even speak to me. When the rattlesnake happened, the examiner wouldn't even print stories. They were so afraid. Yeah. They were so afraid. So they put a wire story uh, on it, and then when Sinan sent them a letter, they wrote a retraction. And um, now, January of 1978, Sinan makes purchases $65,000 worth of weapons from Martell Gun Shop in San Francisco. KGO, which is an ABC affiliate, goes on the air to make the announcement. They look for something on the backdrop to, uh, to, uh, for the story, and they find a picture of a man holding a rifle. So they put that, the Sinon logo, on top of that, and that's the backdrop. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Today, Sinon, the drug rehab, has purchased $65,000 weapons from a San Francisco shop. The problem was, is that the man in the photo was the R.E. Oswald. Oh, my gosh. So they used his <laughs> picture from the GFK assassination? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so, yeah, so sitting on Sears, and they buy stock in ABC, and they send members in ABC shareholder meeting and ask them what protection does their, does their wives have and names them by name. And, um... Uh, a hush went over the room, and the heads of ABC told their lawyers, go get them. Well, Chris Brown, Chris is, I think Chris Brown, real name, and Bob Friendland, like Lawler and Hertz, were just two great lawyers, and they worked super hard. They were the ones who came up with the memos, uh, Garfield wrote a letter to Doug Robeson saying these memos on our violent encounters could be used against us. Gather them all up throughout the foundation and bring them to the legal department and we'll claim attorney-client privilege and no one will ever get them. And Robeson writes, uh, it's been done. So Synanon thought they could clean their records. When Synanon wasn't making responses to the discovery, the ABC lawyers or get collecting sanctions and moving. And finally, Sinan said, hey, you can have everything. We have a warehouse that has copies of everything. Here's the key. Go have a ball. And uh, they thought it was plain, but they hired people who went in there, and they microfilmed everything, and then they had people hired at night to watch it, and all of a sudden a memo would come up, and they'd say, take them down in the basement and give them a lesson in 
manners, you know. Right. Another one would say, you know, prepare to go out and do missions that you might die. You know, it was, um, uh, so they had everything, and that helped, you know, it was like. But Sinanon, Sinanon had thought they had scrubbed it. They hired somebody, yeah. but they didn't do it. Yeah, they thought they scrubbed it. Yeah. And in fact, that's the old thing. He used to say that his problem was he had dope fiend labor, and they only had four fingers. <laughs> you know, they couldn't do anything right. And, you know, he turned out to be, you know. Correct, right? He correct. Yeah. correct. He thought he was correct. So, so ABC is sort of the unsung hero at this time. And uh, now, Dietrich and everyone's put guilty. One of the reasons they put guilty was, you know, they had set up this defense that that tape you heard was just uh, make believe. It was just a game going on and it wasn't serious. But here we had all these memos saying, you know, new rules fostered and then putting it in action. And so they were opening the door that all this stuff would come in. And um, so. We sit on an offer at ABC something like $60,000 to let them drop the lawsuit. I used to say the only guy who had a good lawsuit was Lee Harvey Oswald if he was alive. <laughs> but um, the, um, uh, the trial goes on, and sitting on is delaying, 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 and running up the bill. And meanwhile, ABC gets sued by Lloyds of London their insurance carrier, and Lloyd's claims that they only had a million dollars coverage, which included costs of defense, and the cost of defense has been up to four or five million. You owe us three or four million dollars. And they canceled the policy. Sinon was aware of this and filed a second lawsuit over something else just to say that when you beat us in this one, we're going to run up your fees again. Right. And there was only, the judge made a finding of fact that Sinanar was, was delaying the case to run up ABC's fees. And then uh, the ABC lawyers told me that they got in all the documents on cross-examination. The jury's rolling their eyes. They're not even going to put on a defense. And um, because you know, I can see the jury is just, you know, it's over. And, you know, some guy sitting on would say, oh, our, our reputation is important. And, of course, they'd hold up a newspaper, Rattler, death, you know, trap. And I said, well, what would that do to your reputation? You know, so it was, um, uh, it was a victory. And then lawyers for ABC from New York came out and uh, went into chambers and agreed to pay sitting on a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Keep it hush hush, and all lawsuits were dropped, and no one would ever know about it. It got public only because I broke the news because I was so so incensed. At the time, ABC was making a most uh, mini series on me and Sinon. The screenplay had been finished. Interesting. You know, it was just ready to go into production, and. Uh, I knew that that was over, but it was so dehumanizing that for all the people they beat up for me, they paid me in a quarter. Well, the reason that they paid it was is that to settle the lawsuits between the insurance carrier and ABC and to pick a policy price for a future policy with greater coverage, 
they had to liquidate the Synodon problem because they didn't know what type of money figure to put on because of its ability to run up fees and costs in the future cases. Yeah. And so a deal was made where Synodon would disappear. It would get a million and a quarter, and the lawyers would reduce their attorney fees that they were claiming on the case, and it was and the lawyers were not happy about it. You know, it, it, they had to be fired from the case, and the New York firm took it over. And the jury was so upset that they held a barbecue for uh, Bob and Chris, and did it annually for five years. Interesting. And uh, yeah, so now, what does this mean? Okay, since you. Time of uh, when did pay TV come in? Nineties, oh, late eighties. Seems right. Yeah. So I hard to remember, but yeah. um, I told you now how the ABC thing, you know, uh, uh, got canceled, right. and then um, Showtime was going to make a motion picture in nineteen ninety eight. We finished that script. It was greenlighted for four years, but kept being delayed. They only filmed in Canada, and then they all all went out of the movie making business. But meanwhile, there's no documentary. There's documentary on every pole. People know about Manson. They know mm -hmm. about Jonestown. You know, we've watched Niche. There's been they don't know about Cinnadon. It's not public. Okay, at all. now here's the reason. Now, I told you this whole story. Okay, I only discovered this recently myself. I heard that A&E was going to do a six-part series on different cults in America, starting with Jonestown. I thought, what a great opportunity. And so I was going to make contact with A&E. And I called up their website, and there it was to the right. A&E, which is the History Channel at that time, you know, uh, it was uh, doing all the documentaries, you know, for probably the first 10 years up by TV, they were probably the only station, the A&E stations, that was doing documentaries. You know, now we have CNN, now we have Netflix, you know, right. and, you know, HBO, you know, I don't know, doesn't have... Amazon, all these other people are getting into the game, yeah. Yeah, but at this time, it was only A&E for years. And there on the right on the website, it said that A&E is owned by the Hearst Corporation and ABC. Wow. That's it. That's so, it, yeah. So you've There's installed and installed and pushed back. Now I, I know that there was no way. In fact, probably contractually, they probably agreed. You know, even though Synodon doesn't exist to enforce it. But it's also, I don't think that ABC or the Hearst Corporation would exactly, you can't do the story without really telling what I just said. So you're going to open your own wounds. Who, when can we look forward to the documentary that you're featured in? Do you know when that will be out or the name of it? I don't, I don't know. He did a, he did a, um, uh, a film, and he's gotten some some backing, you know, and uh, he's working on it. Okay, good. You know. Well, uh, Paul Morantz, I'd like to just kind of wrap this up. Is there any final message or anything you would like to tell the listeners? Well, if, if, if between my two books, uh, Escape, he was written more for the public to educate by telling uh, and 
and quick, easy reading the factual stories, you know, one chapter on Manson, the SLA, um, um, you know, Jones Townsend and on, you know, Scientology, you know, that without lecturing, without saying the, the commonalities are, is it you by just being entertained by these stories will see the similarities and you'll get it, you know, it's uh, without being sort of lectured to. And it was, it was written to be entertaining. Uh, my other book, I've actually gotten the greatest uh, responses from, which is on people who say that it's ironic that the man who fought and brought them down has written the best book on Sinanon, you know, from Miracles of Madness. But it's 670 pages, and it starts in 1913. And so it it makes you experience Sinanon from its early glory days to the end, and you go through changes with it. It isn't for everybody because, you know, I think we're in what we call the Twitter generation. You know, people are used to, you know, things in a paragraph or two. Right. Um, so, but for someone who really wants to understand human behavior, you know, or to see Animal Farm or 1984 really in detail and effect and how it occurred, you know, I think it's... Um, it's a classic book that... And, uh, and both of those books can be uh, had at Amazon, is that correct? Yeah. And do you do you have a personal website where people can get copies? Uh, no, okay. I don't, but I do have a personal website that okay. gives... Uh, what is that? PaulMarantz.com uh, And there are, you know, the... Lots of chapters on on Synanon in their early forms are on there, and stories about all my other cases are on there. But but they're long, and it's actually better to get the books because it, it's less reading, it's shorter. You know. Well, I can really, yeah. I can testify that Escape My Lifelong War Against the Cult is an excellent book. I read the whole thing, so kudos to you for writing that. And your other book is the true story of Charles. Dieterich and Synanon by Paul Morantz from Miracle to Madness. So those can be had on Amazon and www.paulmorantz.com. Paul, thank you so much. We talked for a long time. Now we just made three hours, so you're my longest interview right. I've ever done. <laughs> well, the question the question is, is how many people will be asleep for three hours? I don't know. know. You know, I, my, my <laughs> listeners my listeners have long. Uh, Long attention spans. They're not fully Twitter generationalized. They actually listen to these things. People put them on and drive or listen to them at work. So you never know. You can well, see. Oh, it was interesting. Well, thank you very well, much. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day.